It's the perfect time to talk turkey about some of the turkeys that have been talking. And that's what we're going to do today on the program. We're going to make fun of stupid people doing and saying stupid things. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's broadcasting's most valuable podcaster and my most valuable friend, the great Brian Last, everybody. Hello, hi, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. With all my value, <laughs> your most valuable friend. <laughs> well, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks. How can I miss you if you don't go away? And you went away and we all missed you. Uh, haven't done this in a couple of weeks and I'm almost out of practice. So hopefully you can lead me. This is my show today, but you're going to be the star because it's your triumphant return. It's like, you know, Lawler coming back after the fatal heart attack or Punk returning in Chicago. Not necessarily like either one of those situations, but sure. Like Mussolini! Oh, God. And here he is. Maybe I should have taken off another week. Well, we want to thank Solomon Grundy uh, for filling in last week on the experience. And um, and we apologize for the lack of a drive-through this week, but we're going to rectify that. Or last week, we're going to rectify that this week. And we're, we're back in the saddle again after... Uh, after a rough couple of weeks. Yeah, and let me thank everyone because it was kind of uh, amazing to see how many people responded on Twitter and via email and the ones who have my text texted me. And <laughs> thank you to everyone. Uh, it meant a lot to me and it meant a lot to my family. And, uh, you know, little cool things like, too, like uh, my brother, who was a wrestling fan when he was a kid and is no longer a wrestling fan, they ran him off, too. <laughs> His favorite wrestler from childhood texted me. And it meant something to him that, like, wow, this wrestler who I liked when I was a kid, who I spent so much time watching, he's thinking of my father for just a few minutes. So there were things like that, and just so many people. Uh, I wish I had the time to respond to everyone. I don't know if it's possible, but thank you. Uh, I read just about everything that came in. Uh, I think maybe everything. Thank you. For those of you unaware, uh, the reason there was no drive-through, and I guess I'm going to have to explain this on the drive-through for those people that don't listen to the experience, too. Oh, they listen to everything. Uh, a few months ago, my father suddenly got gravely ill in Florida, and uh, I had to take off and go down there, and it went from him being a relatively healthy older man to stage four cancer, and it was a lot to deal with and a lot of things that they couldn't figure out at first, and eventually I brought him up here to get better treatment in the tri-state area, and I had my family here, and... Uh, long story short, after a few months of a lot of uh, a lot of things going on, he passed away this past week. But if you could find any good to get out of that fact that he died so early, which you know was upsetting, we were all here. He was in a last family home. His grandkids were all here. His children were all here. And like I said, that's why I was off the show last week. That's why uh, Luke Kippelman subbed for me over the summer, and that's why there was no drive-through this week. And once again, thank you to everyone. And thank you to you. And Stacy, you guys were tremendous, and I really appreciate it. Well, and also, we've been doing 
morbid humor, little cryptic remarks about what day is this and, and did have we recorded part of this show or whatever, and we've been some doing some Frankenstein show put togethers over the past few months, and people obviously didn't you know, didn't know what the situation was at that point. And they think, what are they fucking around with each other about? And why can't these shows come out on time? It's a, I told everybody last week that if it'd been me in the position that you've been in with things you've had to deal with, I'd have announced, Hey, everybody, I'll see you in a couple of months. So it's amazing that you were able to, and it's your, not only your dedication, but also you really actually, for some reason, like doing this. Well, I guess it's my, sparkling wit and charming personality but i guess i couldn't hardly run you off but um but we've been trying to make it work things should be smoother sailing with the podcast from here on out and and like i said you know it's been a rough couple months but i do as well appreciate everybody's you know input once they found out you know what was going on it really is amazing now that you know we can look back a little bit on the last quarter of the year the last several months how many episodes major medical things happened in the middle of that we had to drop the episode, we had to pick things back up, we had to come back the next day or hours later. My father literally died on the table during a show, and we had to drop everything, and I had to get everything taken care of, and then we picked the show back up, and the goal was, let's do this professionally. There's a lot of people who really love this show, and let's give them what they what they pay for. They pay nothing. Let's give them what they pay yeah, for. Yeah, let's give them what they pay for. Well, and that's exactly what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen. Bupkis is what you get from us. Um, and I, it was comedic that the days that I did have, because that was not made up. I did have painters hanging off the house and all the, it, it, everything happened at the same time, the remodel and that's drug on and got more complicated. And people crawling all over the house and the hammering and the clanging and the banging and the noise, 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 noise. There were days where we started going and then you had to take a break to go pay someone or direct someone or push someone. And then you came back and minutes later, I had to take a break because an oncologist yeah. called or a doctor called. There were multiple recording sessions like that. It's amazing what we've churned out in the last few months. Uh, churn may be the right word for it. But anyway, today... Hopefully this will be a an episode that'll really churn your folks' stomach. Uh, there have been an incredible amount of, I'm not even talking about the wrestling programs. Just it seems like that a lot of people, since you've been gone, have done and said some stupid things. And I've I've jotted down some notes of things to talk about on the stupid things they said. But before we do that, and I asked you this right before we went on the air, you haven't obviously and understandably had time to see this, but I watched the the new Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction on HBO the other day. And my God, it's not just wrestling. What has happened to the music business? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? It was an all-woman show, to be honest. The women stole the show. And I'm going to say that right flat out. I'm not sexist. Um, I just don't like bad women wrestlers, but I can goddamn... Be honest to tell you, when the women stole the show on this thing, Pat Benatar, Annie Lennox, and Dolly Parton blew everybody off the the male, except for a few of the you know legacy inductees from years gone by or whatever. But the male representation at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this Lionel Richie, Eminem, for fuck's sake. Eminem, 
in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when he was doing his acceptance speech, I was thinking, boy, uh, several police officers ought to go and just shake him down right now. I bet they could lock him up for three years. What are you saying? I'm saying he looked like a fucking pickpocket, a fucking <laughs> homeless bum sleeping in a box on the street under an overpass. He's worth millions. Well, he don't look like it. And and boy, and they're right there. That's the American dream. If this fucking nitwit can be worth millions and millions of dollars, it can happen to anybody, regardless of talent or perspicacity. Well, he is, I mean, I know you don't like rap, but he is one of the greatest rappers of all time, one of the most talented lyricists. Well, and I'm of sure he was also the nicest guy in the Cook County Jail one time, but that's not a big honor either. And he should be in the Rap Hall of Fame. Again, this is where it's not just rap. A lot of it's pop, too. They just started including anything that was a popular act after rock and roll stopped being the most successful selling form of music. Anything after that, they just include now. Well, I can understand why it stopped being the most successful selling form of music if the example of what we've had to put up with for the last 20 years or so. But anyway, if you go out of your way to see Pat Benatar, Annie Lennox, who's just incredible, and Dolly Parton even wrote a, hey, she said it was a rock song. It was kind of like a rock country song, but um, she nipped up for the occasion. She announced beforehand, months earlier, that I see I'm on the ballot. Please don't vote for me. I forget exactly what she said, but I'm not a rock and roll person. I shouldn't be in there. Vote for these people that deserve it. And then they voted her in anyway. She's like, okay, yeah. I guess I'll go. Yeah, and I'll write a song for it. <laughs> Anyway, so if you get a chance, see that, but uh, skip over Eminem. And Lionel Richie, his face looks like one of those 60s Hammer horror films, like when the statue comes to life. He went to see whoever Smokey Robinson went to. Have you seen Smokey lately? No, I, I was going to visit him over Chinooka this year, but uh, I, hadn't, I didn't get a chance. All right. Well, that was the rock. Do you and roll remember Hall that? Do you remember? I remember. Chinooka? All right. Happy Chinooka. I don't happy know what that is, but happy Chinooka. All right. I, before we go too much further, I've got an email. You see, I got an email from Josh Trainer, who uh, he and his lovely better half Aaron are uh, original members of the cult. They've been around forever. They're not senior citizens. It, it just seems like it. But he sent me an email I wanted to read because it was so well-written. I will do that now. Mr. Cornette, well, unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to another four-legged faithful. Our 15-year-old rescue, Captain One-Eyed Jack Trainer, who was truly the heel of the Trainer household, went to Grandpa's ranch in the sky last week. A mix of wire hair Jack Russell and Chihuahua, Captain Jack was found wandering the streets of Modesto, California, with a cone and fresh stitches from a recently removed eyeball. We came to the conclusion he took his own eye out for losing a fight. He was on the fast track for being put down, but my wife was able to rescue him at the 11th hour, and he became one of the family for over a decade. Old One-Eyed was the archenemy of all cats and service repairmen. Never above using illegal means to get an advantage, he resorted to nothing short of Pearl Harbor tactics to terrorize the Achilles tendon of many visitors family and friend alike. R.I.P. Jackie Boy. One bright note is we rescued a seven-year-old black lab, the Great Kabuki, and she is actually the mother of our puppy Bunny. 
thank you and aloha, Mr. Last, for the shows. And that's from Josh and his lovely wife, Erin. We wanted to pay tribute to Captain One-Eyed Jack there. So the child of Kabuki is Bunny? Bunny. Why not Muda? Well, I guess because, I don't know, the dog's either female or doesn't spit. Doesn't blow the mist. Could you teach a dog to blow the mist? Can you teach a human to blow mist? I haven't seen too many do it successfully I, in a while. It, 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 it Apparently it takes effort. I don't know. It used to be easy, but maybe, well, now they've changed the formulation. I have to tell you something now, because people don't know this, but I know this, and I hope you don't mind me revealing this. You did not watch what? the Women's War Games match. Well, no, of course not. You need to watch. You know why? There's a, the best spot in the whole match. Can I spoil it for you? Please do. Rhea Ripley takes the mist. And she sells it tremendously, and then she gets DDT'd, and the way she takes that bump, it's the <laughs> best thing in the entire match. Watch it just for that Rhea Ripley spot. So, 35 minutes for a 30-second spot. Okay, I'll, uh... Look, there are really talented women in there, there are some okay women in there, and then there are some, you know, just a few that, you know, maybe don't belong. But it's, it's well, all then... right. Then let's go ahead and tell the people, today on the program, we're going to catch up with some of the shows briefly. Last Wednesday's Dynamite, an interview segment on SmackDown. I did watch the men's war game where this is early Sunday morning. Um, and so I did watch the men's war games. The reason why I didn't watch any of the rest of Survivor Series was a time factor. And the reason I didn't watch the women's war games before the men's war games was because I wanted to give the men's war games the best chance to be good without having seen another war games before I watched the war games and it being girls in the war games. So I'll, I'll see. And the, the drive through your program will catch up on the rest of the survivor series, right? I assume. I mean, we don't have to, at well, least, at we, least the war games match. All right. Well, which one? <laughs> Do you want to watch AJ Styles versus Finn Balor based on everything no, you've no, seen? No, no, no. Was that on there too? That was. I'm going to watch too. my boy Theory. Oh, watch that! Actually, that was probably the best match, even though you know it's a three way match. Well, but when the others were ten ways and involving furniture in cages, the three way may be the most like wrestling. You know what annoys me the most, and it's the least bothersome thing about WWE's presentation of War Games. I mean, it's weapons everywhere and all sorts of shit, but no roof to me defeats the whole purpose. Well, yeah, that's that does take some of the, and it's not like they have to do the old thing with Crockett where he was on a budget and have to. The roof is only eight feet high. They could make a tall roof. They've done it before, but that does. Well, we'll talk about when we talk about the whole war game. It's a completely different match now, anyway. Let's face it, and I don't think you can have a classic war games match anymore because. The the people don't take it the same way. You know, they're still just waiting to see people break shit. It's not about, oh my God, I hope Dusty and the superpowers win this and chase those evil four horsemen out of the, you know. Speaking of the four horsemen and Dusty, we'll get to the war games later on. This week, for those of you who have been waiting with bated breath and God, that smells. Uh, this week on Tales from the Territories is finally the episode on the Carolinas Jim Crockett promotions. There will be a roundtable discussion with uh, Baby Doll Arn Anderson 
and a, fo- a host of other folks, and I will be bopping in from uh, the castle here in Louisville with some footage and telling some stories. And uh, so that's Tuesday night, as we know by now, 10 p.m. Eastern on Vice TV, Tales from the Territories, this Tuesday, which is what, November 29th. So imminently, I'm going to be on Vice again. This is always a cause for celebration since I'm their biggest star, along with the the rapper who cooks. Uh, And when you are finished watching Tales from the Territories, Tuesday night at 10 o'clock on Vice TV, don't forget to go to jimcornett.com while you can and get your Christmas presents for the whole hee-haw gang in your life because we are caught up. The figure backlog that started back in September has been cleared up. Every action figure that has been ordered through, I believe, November 17th or 18th has either arrived, been shipped, or are in the hands of the feather bottoms and will be going out imminently. And later on, by the end of this week, I'm going to hand off everything through Thanksgiving weekend. So we're caught up. The lazy booking t-shirts have been so successful that we reordered uh, several hundred more two days after they went on sale so we can try to have an uninterrupted supply. But my suggestion is if you want everything by Christmas, and folks, internationally, it's a crapshoot right now the way the world is these days. Maybe Canada might be okay for Christmas if you get it in right now, but domestic orders, we've still got the next week or 10 days. You can get your orders in and we can process everything and get it out in the domestic mail in time for it to arrive before Christmas. If you wait too much longer than that, well, I just can't take responsibility. I'm just going to absolve myself. I'm going to wash my hands of any responsibility if you don't get everything in by like December 7, 8, 9, thereabouts. I'm giving them fair warning, Brian, right? Well, warning. Fairness is in the eye of the beholder. Fairness is in the eye of the beholder. JimCornette.com. And again, the lazy booking t-shirts, order those quick because we don't have time to reorder more and get them in time to get them to you by Christmas. So when this supply runs out, whether it's Christmas time or not, we're going to Take them down until the first of the year. JimCornette.com. Get them while they're, well, they're not hot. Actually, it's been quite cold here. Get them while you can wear them. Get them while you can get them. What do you got? Any thoughts on the passing of the former governor, Governor Brown? You know, I was going to mention that, and I forgot to jot it down in my notes, and I can't believe that with all the things that have been going on up there, you still, the folks in New Jersey, Still had time to be broken up and sentimental about the passing of John Y. Brown. Everybody in the world knows who John Y. Brown is, right? Well, I read the news. That's how I became aware of it. But actually, I don't think so because I found I learned a lot when I read his bio. Well, John Y. Brown at one point was not. He was at various points one of the more popular and one of the more unpopular people in the state of Kentucky. He's a former governor of Kentucky. He also married. He married. That's why he became unpopular. He mellied all around. (laughs) Mellied all around. He married Phyllis George, the former beauty queen who later became the, what was it, the network? Was she on CBS, sportscaster, Phyllis George? Right. And, but the biggest thing that he was known for here in the state of Kentucky 
is John Y. Brown led the consortium of uh, of local business people that formed a group and bought Kentucky Fried Chicken from Colonel Sanders. In the early to mid-60s, for like $2 million, they bought Lock, Stock, and Barrel, Kentucky Fried Chicken, the rights to the Colonel's name, likeness, the whole nine yards. He thought, holy shit, I've just, I'm farting through silk now. And then they franchised it, and within a handful of years, it was worth many multiples of that, and Colonel Sanders got cranky and started knocking them in the newspaper. And they almost, I think, I don't know whether they ever filed a suit or not, but they almost had to sue Colonel Sanders if they didn't actually file it to get him to stop burying what the John Y. Brown and his group had done to Kentucky Fried Chicken. The Colonel was not a man to be trifled with. So John Y. Brown is the only person in the history of the world that was ever not only the governor of Kentucky, but also fucked Phyllis George and Colonel Sanders. And maybe Kenny Rogers. He, I didn't realize until I read the article in the Times that he also started Kenny Rogers Roasters. Yes, well, and as a matter of fact, I'll have you know that also the reason why that Wendy's exists today is because Dave Thomas who was hired by John Y. Brown and his associates to market and and be one of the top executives in Wendy's when it uh, was not, was not, uh, I'm sorry, KFC, when it was franchised, he invented the bucket. Dave Thomas invented the bucket of chicken. Get out of here. I never knew that. Yes. And that became the symbol and it was on the sign in the whole nine yards. And because it, it's hard to take fried chicken around in a bag, right? So he came up with the bucket. And then they fucked him on a business interest that he had in one of the companies that was supplying them doing business with KFC and made him turn over his shares, which then became worth millions. And when they wouldn't give him back, he said, all right, fuck you. And he went and started Wendy's. And gave the KFC people many sleepless nights over that. That's amazing. He went and not only started a chain, but a really good one. Yes. And actually, now it's turned out to be, well, it's not bigger, it's better. Uh, my God. When's the last time you had KFC? It's been a while. I mean, it's, a, it's easier to get Wendy's or Wendy's all around. Well, you will, but not down here. I mean, you know, there's still plenty of KFCs, but gee, many Pete, it doesn't taste like it used to. How many KFCs now are half KFC, half Taco Bell? Well, that's because of our friends at Yum Brands here in Louisville with the Yum Center and Yum. Uh, they own Pepsi, KFC, Taco Bell, and, oh, God damn it, something else, Pizza Hut. And they call Ugh. themselves the world's largest restaurant chain, and that's using the word restaurant very loosely. But anyway, so John Y. Brown is dead, and you know who ain't feeling too good himself? Who's that? Another <laughs> one of our old friends, Brian. Another one of our old friends. Our longtime listeners of the show, it's been a couple of years since we've mentioned this fellow, but there's an outlaw mud show guy up in Pennsylvania, one of the garbage wrestlers, the deathmatch wrestlers, and we affectionately call him Grover. 
Well, Grover's not doing too well over the past week. And I know what a lot of people are going to say. They're going to say, well, Cornette, how can you be so petty? How can you be so, so grumpy to enjoy someone's misery and misfortune? Well, I don't normally enjoy people's misery and misfortune, except when they have been a person that wanted to tell me in the past how to modify my behavior. And what a rotten, sorry son of a gun I am. And then when the truth comes out about these people, I sometimes make mention of it. Well, old Grover, apparently I'm trying to, what is the date here? This is the date of his arraignment. He was arrested, oh, a week or two ago, and he was arraigned in Pennsylvania on the 22nd. And according to our friends, well, at PWInsider.com, but they are taking a local news report. WTAJ Television reported this. That the cops, apparently they see a suspicious-looking car with two people inside. And they go up to this car. And I don't know who the guy in it with him was. Some apparently 60-year-old man was in the car along with our friend Grover, who was passed out in the driver's seat. And when the police revived him with apparently with Narcan, that's that stuff they give people to bring them back from a drug overdose, right? That's correct, yeah. Well, after they brought old Grover out of his nap with Narcan, he was able to admit to them that he had snorted 10 bags of heroin. Jesus. Now, we didn't say, I don't know whether these, are these hefty bags? Are these grocery <laughs> no. bags? I don't think they're that big, no. It did a Ziploc bags. I don't know. It didn't say, you know, alligator bags. I don't know. It didn't say what the size or quantity that it would hold of the bags are, but he snorted 10 bags of heroin and was found to have meth, methamphetamine on his person. Huh. And a search of the car discovered... 25 grams of possible, over 25 grams of possible meth, marijuana, other heroin packets, mushrooms, oh, alprazolam. What's that? That is a a, 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 a pharmaceutical pill. Uh, a, oh, God damn. It's a, a generic name for something that we'd recognize, and I can't remember what. Okay. Um along with paraphernalia and $181 in cash. Oh, so they're dealing. Well, maybe he just, you know, he sold something and then pulled over to the side of the road to take a nap with some <laughs> 60-year-old man in the car with him. Uh, Pennsylvania court <laughs> records indicate that Grover has been charged with manufacture, delivery, or possession with intent to manufacture or deliver, which is a felony. Violation of hazard regulation, use and possession of drug paraphernalia, intentional possession of a controlled substance by a person not registered. So he's not registered. I bet you he's been registered since then. Possession of marijuana for small personal use, driving under influence of alcohol or a controlled substance, failure to keep right. Boy, he did take a left turn somewhere in his life. Wait a minute. Wait, hold on. 
That came out of left field. What failure to keep well, right? Where was he? I have a feeling they may have been sitting on the wrong side of the road. I don't know. <laughs> were, they in the middle of, were they in the middle of the road with him behind well, the wheel? Well, who knows? They were asleep. We don't know. <laughs> failure to use safety belt for driver and front seat occupant and careless driving. <laughs> now, I guess if you if you did indeed snort... 10 bags of heroin and then drive that that would be a careless thing to do. So Grover remains incarcerated at the Huntington County jail in Pennsylvania with bail set at $75,000. Court records indicate he is unable to post bail. And unless he is able to do that, well, with $181, I don't see why he couldn't get out of anything, but unless he's able to make bail, he will remain there through his arraignment in January. So they found him and the 60-year-old man sleeping, him behind the wheel. However, they also charged him with failure to keep right and careless driving. Did they actually catch him driving like a maniac by the time they got to the car he was passed out? Well, or potentially, did some? Is, was this one of those deals where somebody else called about a an erratic driver, and when they they got there, they found that he'd... Just going to sleep? I don't. Who knows? And I know a lot of people are saying, well, who is this guy? And I've mentioned that he was another one of these people that told me I needed to modify my behavior. But he, as I said, he's one of the deathmatch guys. He's the guy that took a vertical brain buster off the top of two ladders through a an apparatus of light tubes at some mud show in a barn a couple of years ago. And the, the 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 clip went out on Twitter, and apparently, imagine this. I can't imagine how in the world this happened. One of the light tubes stabbed this moron up under his arm and severed not only arteries, but muscles, and it was close to an amputation. And I made a remark about it. Well, I hope it. The fans were lucky if they stopped the show so that everybody could watch him bleed out, you know, and oh my gosh, he just, he took offense and all the garbage deathmatch wrestling fans took offense. How dare a horrible person like Jim Cornette say horrible things about this wonderful person who just wants to wrestle and, and show his art. And then I also mentioned that you know they started a GoFundMe when this moron did this to himself, when he let some other untrained, fat, tattooed fuck pick him upside down and drop him headfirst off ladders through light tubes. When he had to have emergency surgery, they started a GoFundMe. And do you know... How much of that money went to heroin? Well, I was about to say, do you know they raised? People actually gave this fucking guy money for something that he did to himself through his own carelessness and stupidity. $10,435 that innocent fans that have been taken in by charlatans like this and have been suckered in by goofballs like this, that there's something special about this motherfucker and his ilk. There's no hungry children. Well, we all know cancer's been cured. There are no mistreated animals being abused. Let's send our money to a 
fucking heroin addict that butchers himself in garbage matches in front of nobody to feed his own fucking convoluted ego. That's why I say shit like this about these people, because they do stupid shit like this to themselves because they don't have any other talent in life, and then when they fuck up, they're not grown adults that have insurance and can take care of themselves. Then they beg people for money. Well, there's people that legitimately have problems that are not of their own making. And they need help. And they're the ones that get the shaft because nobody knows who they are. They're not public figures. They're not well-known deathmatch performers. They're just normal people that got fucked by fate or kismet, or karma, or the United States medical system, or the United States legal system, and they need some help, and they try GoFundMe, and oh, nobody knows about them, but this fucking moron, how much money does 10 bags of heroin cost? $1,000 a pee? Well, there you go. He just snorted his GoFundMe. Fuck you. Is that how much what? those bags cost? I don't know. That's why I asked the question. I said, is it a thousand dollars a bag? I don't I haven't bought heroin lately. It can't be. And that you know, much. inflation. If he had okay. ten of them, if he had ten of them, where would he have gotten the money for ten of them to snort? There's no way. Well, other than you, to go fund me, I'd be where would he if have you didn't money? snort ten bags of heroin, would you make that up and tell the police you did? No. All right, so anyway. There's your deathmatch wrestlers, folks. There's your garbage championship wrestling people. Convicted felons, fucking drug addicts, goddamn unemployed, dregs of society on the side of the road passed out, potentially endangering the public. Get in the fucking t-shirt business again, clown. Maybe you earned enough money to bear. Oh, I forgot. That didn't work out real well for you either. Anyway, he's coming back to work with the 60 year old man next time. You know, at what point, at what age do you have to get where you say, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to retire from wrestling. I'm however old I am, 86. There's no reason for me to be taking bumps anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to quit snorting the heroin. What age do you have to get to where you go? You know, maybe I ought to be just stopping snorting this heroin. I'm too old for that. I don't know. William Burroughs thought you could never be too old for that. So I really couldn't tell you. I don't know why people feel that they have to just continue on doing the say instead of doing new shit that's more amenable to the age and or if shit, if shit works, in. if shit works, keep doing it. If it doesn't work, try something new. Well, if I was caught on the side of the road with every drug except goddamn Metamucil, in a passed out condition and only had $181 to my name, I'd probably try something new. Speaking of trying something new, I asked you earlier um, if you could find a Twitter exchange for me because it was it was not only funny but also enlightening. And and I don't know if you heard about this, but it made news for a time or two till somebody else started saying stupid stuff and, you know, knocked it off the news pages, but the gun boys, the gun, the ass boys, the gun club, the sons of Billy Gunn. That sounds like a John Wayne movie. The sons of Billy Gunn. They 
had a Twitter exchange with Jungle Boy Jack Perry here this, I guess, last week. And I remember the the closing line that tickled me, but I can't remember exactly how it got started. Were you able to find this exchange? I did, and it appears that uh, at least one, if not all of them, have been pulled down by now, but I found oh, a, an archived copy here. I'm not exactly sure what would have triggered this, but Austin Gunn, or not ass boy on Twitter, <laughs> he tagged a couple people, it looks like from The Observer, and it says, kid wants to be a gun so bad. I don't know if they were referring to Jungle Boy, or I don't know if the timing plays into it, but that's what started it. No one else is tagged in it, from what I see. Jungle Boy responded, I don't know. I think I prefer being booked on the pay-per-views. Boom! To which Colton Gunn, again, Austin Gunn's tweet was the one that started this, or the one that was responded to by Jungle Boy, Colton Gunn responded, I guess if we changed with the Bucks and stayed up until 6 a.m. with the boss, we could get a spot too. Ouch! (laughs) So, (laughs) So now... What's happening over there is that since the floodgates have been opened and everybody has just decided they can air their dirty laundry in public as far as who gets along in the locker room and who doesn't, and it's now pretty much an established fact from reports from first-person accounts from talent, both there and that have departed, that... Apparently, it's easier to get booked on the big shows if you stay up all night with Tony Khan and do some of his drugs. These are the comments that have been made by people. Remember what was... God damn it. Um, help me. Um, oh, um, Big Swole. Big Swole. Big Swole. Said, well, and Tony Khan fired me after he smoked my weed. I thought we were friends. And now here is here's the and I love the gun boys, you know I do, but here's the preliminary guys at this point coming out and saying, Well, yeah, you know, if you stay up all night with the boss and dress in the buckaroos locker room, you'll get booked on a pay-per-view. That's why we're sitting home. That's why FTR's in Mexico or somewhere. So you're focusing on the Tony part. I think the fact that he's jungle stooge for the young bucks is a bigger part of it. Well, we've known that too, right? Jungle Stooge, you know, the, 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 the jungle drums give all of that information. Um, <laughs> I'm here. I got my ear to the ground. Well done. Well, done. I'm hearing those jungle drums. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you can telephone, telegraph or tell jungle boy and it'll get right back anywhere. But, but that's again, now they're not even making an effort to try to hide it. Tony, do you, is this a good thing for Tony's public perception as the the owner and operator, manipulator and booker and boss and chief bottle washer of this whole company? If the guys can just willy nilly say on Twitter or out in public in front of God and everybody, yeah, Tony goes out and parties with all the guys and they do this and that and they stay up all night and you know if you're in that clique then you get preferential treatment. And even if they're not getting preferential treatment because they're in that clique, you've still established that the boss is staying up all night partying with the fucking guys. And I mean, I know Vince 
McMahon was noted in the 80s for going to a few adult entertainment establishments with some of the boys. But this is, uh, I don't think he was out there with fucking Harvey Whippleman smoking a joint in the, you know, back of the fucking Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. So I, again, you just have to wonder what in the flying fuck control that he has or thinks he has or would like to have or how he thinks he's going to get it when now everybody on the roster can just say, oh, yeah, you're the, you're the boss's stooge, so fuck you. It's not just him. If that's what they're saying about the number one and there's similar, if not more alarming things being said about the number two, that's a problem. Who's running the ship? Because Shad Khan's not actively involved in any of this. And if he was, I don't know if it would be happening this way. No, and, and, and which one would you rather be, Brian? Would you rather be number one or would you rather be number two? In AEW or in society? Well, just, in, just in general. You know, and if you're number one, well, that's better than being number two. All right. And, and I'm going to change order here because I got something else. I got another email from Ron DeShane. And this is an interview since we Tony's name came up. Um, I was going to talk about this later on, but we're on the subject. He's done an interview again with this time with the ringer.com. Oh, <laughs> and, and you know who that they, is, right? I have no earthly clue. The home of that shoemaker idiot who makes up stuff and pretends he's a oh, historian. Well, I thought it was just that because they put Tony Khan through the ringer. Um, apparently, Tony did an interview about the origins of his love for wrestling. And Ron writes uh, a, a little synopsis of this thing and then has some quotes. I thought we this is Tony explaining how he learned to book. Would you like to hear some of this, Brian? Yeah, I saw this article, but I have not read it, so this will be new to me. Well, in talking about his childhood experiences with wrestling and the internet, Tony up opens up in a big way, confirming something many of us have long suspected. Tony just sees AEW as a continuation of his fantasy wrestling booking and believes that Dynamite has been in existence since 1995. Article starts with Tony confirming what we all knew his parents hated wrestling. Quote, my dad took me to that first show, but then I didn't go to see another live wrestling show for probably five years after that. I tried to push countless times to e either see shows in Champaign, Illinois, or in surrounding towns. I never really got through to my parents. They were not supportive of it. So they didn't want to take him to buy a ticket to see a goddamn live show when he was a kid. And now his father's bought him a wrestling promotion. All on the theory that, well, I'll get to see my son be happy spending the money I'm going to leave him before I die. <sighs> Tony talks about the Attitude Era. And he says, I really enjoyed it. And as I went through puberty and matured, I think the wrestling business went through its own crazy growth spurt as I was going through mine. 
So he thinks that the Attitude Era, which we've established now with 20 years of hindsight, was actually the start of the downhill slide of the wrestling business that it has never recovered from was it going through a crazy growth spurt. Puberty, if you will. And then Ian, uh, the Ian Douglas is the author of this. Oh. Apparently not the uh, shoemaker fellow. Yeah, let me stop. There's... Ian Douglas is a, is a good writer. He's actually written several wrestling books and he knows his stuff. So I, when I put down the ringer, it's not about Ian Douglas. He's very good. It's about the, the fucking cobbler. The cobbler that runs the thing. Okay, and then Ian asked about e-wrestling, fantasy wrestling. And Tony went off talking in detail about how fantasy wrestling shaped him as a wrestling fan and as Booker. Tony has been fantasy booking dynamite since 1995. Quote, In 1995, I started doing an e-wrestling show called Saturday Night Dynamite. And then it moved around over the next many years. At one point in time, it was on Monday night. But at one point, it was also Wednesday Night Dynamite. Then I used that name Dynamite for many years. And it has always been a steady thing. I relaunched the promotion with a new territory, new wrestlers, and new stories every several years. I wanted to try something different. The one thing that was always the same was that the weekly show was always called Dynamite. Another quote. He said, wait, hold on. So Okay. Because like I had my G.I. Joe Wrestling Federation. I'm a little older than Tony, but... I had all my G.I. Joes, I had my baby faces, my heels, I would book it, I would write out the cards, and I would circle who won, so I remembered what the big events were, and I would move on. But he's... Well, but hold on now. I'm older than you. Yeah. So I had the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. It's not and as good. Then, and then there was, there was another line, I'm trying to think of what the toys were. Big Josh was one of them. He was a lumberjack. And they all had the thing you could push on the back where they would make the baba chop motion. The three and three quarter inch G.I. Joe is the most perfect figure ever created. No, no, no. These, for these were bigger. These these were like six, seven inches tall. They're not good for wrestling. And but well they but when you put them against the bigger heels, the Vikings, see they had some The uh, Vikings. Foot, they had back in the sixties, I had these foot tall Norse Vikings with shields and swords and everything. And beards, and they were big heels. So I'd put the big heels against the young, good-looking baby faces with the fucking baba chop fucking button. And there you go. And and I would write down cards with all the names of all the great wrestlers in the business. And it didn't matter what territory, because since I'm just writing this down in my room, I can make all these matches and I can envision who might win or not. And I was 12. And even if you do it when you're older, it's... <laughs> Did you think about having a Viking group in OVW to relive your youth? No, no. And I didn't put anybody with a kung fu grip in Smoky Mountain Wrestling either because I was an adult at that point and I had actually been in the business. But I'm uh, continuing on. Another quote. It was probably... How old is Tony Khan? 38 or 39? Okay, it was probably around 2011 
when I wanted to do more great wrestling matches every week, so in my fantasy wrestling league, I created a second show. Incredibly, that was Rampage. But was he doing, this is what I don't understand, in his fantasy wrestling league, is it just something he did by himself that no one knew about, or is it something he was actually posting somewhere online? Wait, wait, no, wait, no, wait, we're going to get to that. But also, 2011, if Tony is 30, let's say he's 35 years old, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, he's 20 fucking four. He's the son of a billionaire, and he's involved with the running of pro football teams and whatever the fuck else, and he's still... He launched a second fantasy show. Where does it, does this guy sleep? He's 40. Has he always been whatever on whatever the fuck he's on? He's 40 years old. Okay, so this was a 29-year-old guy. All right. I actually had a third show that never came to fruition, but it was kind of fun, and it was called Tuesday Night Tag Team Fight. It was called Roads to the Top. <laughs> I had these different shows, but Dynamite and Rampage were always the primary shows. I've done Dynamite since 1995 and Rampage since 2011. Tony credits e-wrestling for getting his reps in as a booker. Quote, in e-wrestling, you can get ideas and try stuff out. I was a really young kid. I'm not saying it was impactful or that you can jump straight from that into the wrestling business, but it was definitely a fun way to get your reps in. If I wanted to go into the heating and air business, can I just start fixing pretend air conditioners? You know, the thing we still don't know about Tony's fantasy booking, and I say this seriously, looking at Dynamite and what it is, did he just book kind of like a Japan style of seriousness where it's just matches and matches mean something leading to other matches? Or did he ever do angles or anything? Because <sighs> the angles that happen in AEW are usually the ones that the wrestlers bring in. And then Tony's usually all about just booking guys against one another. Is that what well, his and booking th- and they and that's pri- and then they have an interview on the Wednesday night show if they're going to fight on Friday, explaining why they're going to fight on Friday, and then you never hear anything about it ever again after they fight on Friday. But more, there's more. Tony says, and here to answer your question from earlier, Tony says that writing for an audience of three people helped prepare him to write television. What? There was a quote. There was a guy who passed away years later who was in the fantasy wrestling league I was in with my regular e wrestling friend. And I remember him saying this so well. He said that we were writing for an audience of just each other. But in a way, we were writing for 10,000 fans or 5,000 fans that were in the arenas of these imaginary shows. Somehow you can still tell when stuff is over or not over with the fans, which is funny because they're not real. But he was right. My other friend and I had never articulated it like that before, but he was right. That spoke to me. Okay. Three people. Him and two other guys. They, they were doing this for years. And, and finally, one guy finally said, you know, we're only doing this for ourselves. And then it clicked. Well... And then, you know, the difficulties of managing wrestlers. That can be prepared for also in e-wrestling as well. Here's another quote. You very quickly start getting the sense when you actually sit down and write shows that you can't please everyone. You can't get everyone you want to use on the show every week unless you're putting 37-hour shows together. Also, everyone isn't going to win every week. That's just not how it works. 
Yeah, think. And he actually is. I'm pretty sure he probably thinks when he's writing one of these formats, I'm going to try to make all the people on the show happy with what they're doing. Brian asked me how many times that I thought or considered of making an individual wrestler happy when I booked a card anywhere in my life ever. How many times? None! They're happy when they get paid. Of course you're happy if you win instead of lose, except if you're really smart to the business and know that you losing the match will draw a bigger fucking house for the return. But now we're really getting into the minutia. You don't write shows to make the wrestlers happy. You write shows to make the fans want to see them. And the guys will be happy when they get paid. Or whenever they do get to go over. Or whenever they get a fucking rat. Or whenever something else happens. And some of the guys are never going to be happy. And (laughs) how many times do you think he had to argue with his e-wrestlers about who's going to do a job? How many of his e-wrestlers asked for his wife and various other people to be hired just to make him happy? Well, there you go. You know, the the whole nepotism thing in e-wrestling I've heard is horrible. But anyway, the article concludes with a comment from the aforementioned Ian Douglas. One thing is already proven to be true. Whether his wrestling audience is real or imagined, and whether the size of his fan base consists of two people or two million, Tony Khan will continue to churn out a steady menu of wrestling content, (laughs) even if some of his detractors insist that his output is hard to swallow. That's a true statement. No matter what happens, he's just going to keep doing this. Yes, and that is the truest thing that we will hear all the live long day today. It cannot be denied he is doing this. (sighs) But I... And I'm just, I'm, and I'll move on. But again, every time I hear something like that, that he actually says out in public, I'm talking, he is Tony Khan, that Tony actually says out in public or in what are supposed to be serious interviews. It's hard to explain to somebody who's not in the business and doesn't have the experience of people over and over coming to them. Oh, we're going to start this. We're going to get TV. We got backers. We got money, blah, blah, blah. I heard on telephone with Tony Khan, this guy, the guy that was just speaking about his fantasy booking, and that's why I knew exactly what this was going to turn out like, and I have not been surprised. That was going to be a shit show with a bunch of indie guys pulling everything a hundred different directions, and no structure and nobody in charge, and half the roster is filled with people that he thinks are his friends. Until it's, you know, convenient for them not to be. Instead of a real attempt at doing something professional. This is the guy that I was talking to on the phone. And everybody wonders why. I'll be over here. I knew the way it was going to turn out. I knew who was involved. And wouldn't you know who won the pony? Everything is happening pretty much according to plan. But you know who can save this whole thing, Brian, last? Chris Jericho. You are exactly correct. Uh, We need a steady, a calm, a serious, a balanced, focused, sharp, professional eye on this thing. That's what we need. And Chris Jericho 
I believe, is the person who can provide a sober, rational viewpoint. Sober? A sober, rational viewpoint of of a person well-reasoned, well-rationed. You know, there is no reason to think that Chris Jericho is one of these crazy conspiracy theory nutcases that would just say ridiculous shit out in public and expect people to take it as gospel. I think Chris Jericho will be the guy to write this ship as soon as he gets down from the spaceship. Because have you heard? <laughs> I can't tell what you're transitioning to and I'm dying to find out. <laughs> have you heard that Chris Jericho has recently stated in public that he believes he may have been the target of an alien abduction? No, I saw that he, I thought you, you know what? I thought you were transitioning to a spot. I just happened to say Jericho. And then I thought you were transitioning to him talking about the Olympics. I do not know this one. No. Okay. Hold on here. I'm going to bring the, I I couldn't print this out. This is, um, this is a quote. Well, the quote, the headline was quote, I wasn't doing drugs or anything. Unquote. Chris Jericho recalls suspicious incident which left him in a daze. And this is on Sportskeeda, whatever that may be. And the author of the article is Jaya Krishna Dasapapan. I swear to God. So we'll move on from that. And apparently this is a, well... It's a friendly news outlet. You can tell this because second paragraph, Jericho can act, sing, and wrestle exceptionally well. Right there, you know that this is not exactly journalism. He has shared several stories from his wrestling and acting career. However, his latest tale has made fans nervous about his health. This is a quote from from Chiss, from Chiss Crerico, from Chris Jericho. (laughs) I have had time displacement. It's when you can't account for a certain stretch of time. It's when you get like abducted. (laughs) Or you black out because of vodka. (laughs) Well, no, hold on now. Hold on now. Now, wait. Okay, let me hear more about his time displacement, please. Well, because there's there's some time. to He couldn't have been drinking because he was driving. See? The the (laughs) quote is, I've had time displacement. It's when you can't account for a certain stretch of time. It's when you get, like, abducted. I was driving home on a country road. Now, right there, it's always, it's never fucking Interstate 64. It's never in downtown fucking St. Louis next to the Arch. It's always in goddamn Broken Bow, Oklahoma on a country road, right? So here's his quote. I was driving home on a country road, and it should have taken me about an hour to get home. And instead of getting home at 2 a.m., now, wait a minute. Does Jericho not live in, in suburban Tampa, Florida? Well, he has how a many residents there? We don't know how many homes he has. Well, have, have, I don't know homes. How many homes you got, homes? <laughs> Where is he going to be driving down a deserted country? How many has he made an indie show somewhere in fucking Apopka? Uh, he's on a country road, and instead of getting home at 2 a.m., I got home at 5 a.m. I still don't know what happened. I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing drugs or anything. 
there is just a big chunk of time missing. I should probably go to a hypnotist and see what happened. He's really lost it. This, uh, this guy got drunk and watched Flight of the Navigator and thought that was his life. I've not seen that flip film, so I will, I'll just laugh, ha ha ha, because I don't get it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, okay, here's the thing now. You're supposed to get home at 2 a.m. You're driving down a lonely country road. I would assume you're alone, because if you weren't alone, then you could turn to the guy next to you and say, hey, where'd the last three hours go? How do I explain this to my wife? I was supposed to be well, home at two. I got home at five. It must have been alien abduction, of course. There's where I was going. <laughs> now, certainly, I know that, it, that especially in the advent of the cell phone era, that uh, my wife, Stacy, always when I'm on a trip, knows approximately what time I'm going to be home, and she gets updates. And even, yes, this was the middle of the night, but one would think that, you know, the insurrectionist wife would be, you know, at least as concerned about where the fuck he's at at two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning when he's overdue and he's driving out by himself. Could something have happened? She'd be at least as concerned about that as she was about trying to overthrow the fucking uh, doofully and lawfully elected government on January 6th. So... She wasn't calling around. She was like, where the fuck's Chris? He was supposed to be home three hours ago. It's pitch black. I don't know what could have happened to him. He won't answer his cell phone. He must be on a country road. A country road being abducted <laughs> and, a and anal probed by fucking the invaders. Roy Finnis found that fucking shortcut. And now Chris has gone through the same path. For all of you fans of the Quinn Martin production, The Invaders. So he can't account for three hours. And again, now this is not his close is I should probably go to a hypnotist and see what happened. Okay. I've driven as everyone knows a couple million miles in my life. How will I find out what happened here? I know I'll go to a hypnotist. I'll go to a hypnotist. What? If I ever <laughs> came back from Orlando or New York or Chicago or wherever the fuck, and I know exactly what time I'm supposed to be home, and if I showed up at home three hours late while never having stopped whatsoever and be not being cognizant of any delay in my trip, I'm calling a goddamn neurosurgeon. I'm getting a brain scan. I'm not going to, oh, I guess I'll probably go to a hypnotist and see if the, the Cartman's anal probe is still inside of me. Did you ever hear about what Dennis Rodman said to Carmen Electra when she caught him in bed with another woman? No, but I'd like to. They were married and she walks in and there's Rodman fucking some other girl. And she says, Dennis, who's this girl in my bed? And he says, what girl? <laughs> the girl right there and he actually said she must have fallen out of the ceiling <laughs> that's almost as good as I was abducted by aliens on a country road <laughs> oh, okay so now the person that apparently has Tony Khan's ear and is giving him loads of great advice including bring somebody in for me to beat every week on television Tony fully believes that he lost three hours in the middle of the night but wasn't concerned enough about it to go to a doctor and find out what may have happened. Was it daylight savings? What day was it? 
Well, now, wait a minute. You can't know it's not daylight save because that's three hours. He would have had to been driving from the West Coast. And also, we fell back rather than ahead. So it's good. The time's going in the wrong way. Maybe he was on the flight with Hogan coming back from Japan where he could work twice in the same day across the international dateline. Do they have an international dateline on an interstate near Tampa? In Tampa? I don't know. Well, Brian, if you've ever wanted to, to just lose three hours or so, I think there's probably easier ways to do it than being abducted by aliens or probed by some swamp creature. I'm thinking that, you know, the best way, if you want to lose not only three hours, maybe even lose eight, eight, nine, or even more, you lose those hours with our friends at Helix Sleep. But you don't really lose them because you're gaining something. You're gaining a great night's sleep. Now, unless you buy the Supreme Helix package, you won't get anal probed by one of these mattresses. However, you will get the best night's sleep of your life. And Brian, you can concur with this. I can, yes, indeed. Well, in the, now that you've concurred, I'll continue. I concur. I'll continue to concur with you. Folks, again, our friends at Helix Sleep, it's Christmas time. It's the holidays. You want to give somebody something? Give them rest. Give them relaxation. Give them comfort. Give them a nice, warm place to take a nap and dream of alien abductions. Give them a Helix Sleep mattress or give yourself one. You deserve it, too. And here's that this is much easier than driving down a lonely country road. All you have to do is walk in your bedroom and lay down. I'm looking at the warranties right now. You know, Helix mattresses are American-made, and they come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. I mean, you're covered up if you don't like it. They'll give you your money back. They'll even pick it up for you. You don't have to send it anywhere. They'll give you a full refund. Their warranties and guarantees cover everything about the mattress, but you got to pick carefully as far as who's living with you and what they're going to do to you while you're asleep and whether or not they're going to steal your belongings and even be there when you wake up or not. You might wake up to a completely empty house if some yahoo that you've moved in with you decides to back up a, a truck and just load everything except the Helix mattress up and just clean your house out. You'll wake up the next day feeling refreshed, best sleep you've ever had in an empty fucking house. But it's not going to be Helix's fault because their their warranties do not cover your roommates. So choose those carefully. Folks, Helix has a mattress, 14 unique mattresses, as a matter of fact, a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, even a mattress made just for kids. The little bitty wee thing that it, it's only two feet long. So how will you know how... Which mattress works best for you? You take the Helix Sleep Quiz. In two minutes, you find your perfect mattress, and they ship it to you straight to your door free of charge. You test it out for 100 nights. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't love it, well, maybe your roommate's going to steal it from you anyway. But nevertheless, go right now to helixsleep.com. That's H-E-L-I-X helixsleep.com slash jce because right now for the holidays and just for you helix is offering up to 200 dollars off all mattress orders and two free pillows if you just go to helixsleep.com and use that code slash jce 
up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows, depending on what you get. Whatever you get, you're going to love it. We can't guarantee that your roommates will be happy about it. I'm sure they'll probably enjoy you going to sleep for many hours every night because then they get the opportunity to run completely rampant. But otherwise, they're going to want one of these mattresses too. So buy two and put that other weasel that you live with on that mattress. And then while he's asleep, well, while the weasel's asleep, the cats will peep. HelixSleep.com slash JCE. All right. Well, speaking of people who are not likely to be booked anytime in the near or far future ever again on a wrestling program or anywhere else for that, except maybe in jail, Brian, have you seen the, the documentary on Peacock on Teddy Hart? What is it? Crime, cons, and cats? I have. I watched it actually with several people. How... In the world, did this guy think that it was a good idea to let people follow him around with a camera? And that he actually, from what I understand, told his friends to talk to this guy. And so a bunch of them did. But then, as this thing went along, and I mean, they tell the whole story. And folks, if you're wondering what we're talking about, Apparently, some wannabe independent filmmaker or guy wanted to get into reality television or whatever thought it would be a good idea for a reality television show if you've got Teddy Hart, who's a wrestler, and he breeds cats, and he has a weird life, and, well, this will be reality television. And he starts following Teddy around and shooting him doing different things, and quickly it goes south and that nobody is interested in a reality show about this guy that they've never heard of. But then the filmmaker starts realizing that he's in the middle of something completely different and continues shooting into what has become this documentary of Teddy Hart's meltdown, I guess, of his entire fucking life. Because I mean, we've talked about you know, some of the problems he had a few years ago where they arrested him for, you know, something in, of a parole violation in Richmond, Virginia. And he said, well, he had just gone there to get to buy weed, but he had wrestled in Washington, D.C. that night, which is 100 miles away. And uh, some, somehow he needed to drive 100 miles to pick up some weed. I don't know what the fuck. He's been in and out of jail, in and out of parole violations for various things. But now, all this stuff has come out in the open that not only has he mistreated, according to the to what they say, some women that used to live with him, one that was portrayed early on in the program as his wife, later found out maybe ex-partner, but also this Samantha Fiddler, the a girl from Canada that wanted to get into wrestling and became one of Teddy Hart's girlfriends, disappeared five or six years ago and has never been seen again. And not only did he not seem sympathetic, but when they kept asking about her, he's like, fuck her, I don't care what happened. I don't know where she is. I don't have anything to do with this. 
I mean, there's so many questions. The biggest question right at the top of segment one, or that's a three-part documentary, the first part of the documentary, Brian, how the fuck does anybody fall for this guy? Male or female? They, you talking about Teddy or the filmmaker? <laughs> yes, Teddy, Teddy Hart. How does anybody, they talked about how he's so manipulative and he had people, both the girls and the, the guy trainees at his wrestling school, fetching and carrying for him and doing chores for him and doing his bidding. And they have this on camera and then they go out in his backyard and here he's got this half-ass self-made ring in a backyard of this house that he calls a mansion. How big was that ring? What, 12 feet, 14 feet, maybe? Slack ropes, do it yourself. <laughs> and he's got a guys that are paying him $2,000 a month to live at his mansion, which was a suburban, you know, fucking subdivision home in various stages of decomposition on the outside of it. And it's filled on the inside. It's a cool house. He's got all kinds of his weird collectibles. But so I can identify with that. But they're training in a wrestling school in a fucking do-it-yourself ring in this guy's backyard. They're paying him $2,000 a month, and they're doing his fucking chores. And you can't tell. You couldn't tell by just sizing this situation up visually that what the fuck? And that you couldn't tell that this guy, Teddy Hart, has barely been on television on any wrestling program in the last 10 years or more ever really if you think about it well ever really big time television but i'm talking about anything and you know mlw <laughs> was the last place and then they let him go a time or two and he was trying apparently to go back there and i don't think they were real receptive i'm sure that situation will not change after this documentary but but that's the thing. I was thinking, sitting there, first of all, what's the matter with these guys in this wrestling school? They can't fucking, they're adults. They can't figure this out. And then I'm thinking, how the fuck is he getting all, all these women to do all this shit for him and with him? And the, the filmmaker at one time was told that he was shooting Teddy's polyamorous lifestyle with his wife and her girlfriend. But then they come back later on and say, no, it was all a bunch of bullshit. And the girl that was supposed to be the girlfriend said, I just met Teddy that day and they hired me to do this because I thought I'd get on television. And Panda, I, I think obviously there were some drugs involved. So basically you got, you know, a bunch of people hanging around doing his bidding, male and female, for either... They think they're going to be on television. They think they're going to be wrestling stars. They think they're going to be reality TV stars. They think they're going to be God whatever. And oh, did we mention also drugs were probably involved. And that's the thing. Again, you're looking at it's because Teddy now he was a good looking kid when he was younger, but now he's what he's early forties and he's got the ridiculous dress that that he he dresses in these wild clothes that he wears everywhere out in public at the mall where nobody knows who he is he called himself a fashion designer 
A fashion <laughs> I mean, you've people, guys have joked about it. He walks around the airports and the malls and these outfits. Nobody knows who the fuck he is, but they think, what the fuck's the matter with that guy? And, you know, and, and then the thing with, here's another thing with the Samantha Fiddler, the girl who disappeared. She has three kids and she was in her early 20s, but somehow he convinced her that she should come and train with him and he'd make her a big time wrestling star. And she leaves her children in with family <clears throat> and goes from, from Canada to Florida, not even to train at, at a school that Teddy Hart has, but that again, now here, this fucking slime ball shows up, this chasing rants. And I've never actually, as far as I know, seen him or heard him speak. I've heard the name because it's so unusual. And he's the one that that uh, old Twinkle Toes, Kenny Olivier, got all the heat for because he had them provide a show that he was doing a ring. Chasing Rance is some kind of convicted sex offender. And the Team Vision dojo that Teddy Hart sent this girl that disappeared to, to train to wrestle is owned by him and has been the place where, how did they phrase that? A bunch of shit happens in that place. And a lot of people cover up knowing who's involved because they're friends of people who may or may not be EVPs in places. So Teddy Hart sends this, mother of three to a wrestling school 3,000 miles away from her home run by a sex offender, and then she disappears. And there is Chasen Rance, my God. I mean, he seems sleazy, the, the nasal voice and the greasy hair and the diminutive frame with the little, you know, beak nose on him. He looks like a little rat. But at the same time, I wonder how could he make anybody do anything against their will? He looks like he's three and a half feet tall. But apparently it was underage. So he, you know, whatever's going on there, he wasn't trying to prey on grown adults that could defend themselves. Nevertheless, so we go back to Teddy Hart. <sighs> the, the Basically, the summation of this whole thing is that Teddy Hart is a manipulative asshole who has mistreated all these people, has a criminal record a mile long, has been involved in a, a disappearance that nobody can fucking solve, and he's not anxious to try to help anybody. And I don't know. I think Ric Flair in the Dark Side of the Ring plane ride from hell episode came off like goddamn Audie Murphy in World War II compared to... the. Teddy Hart looks like the worst human being in the world for three fucking hours of this documentary. And one would have to think that we will never see him in the wrestling business again. Wouldn't you think that? He could probably get booked in Mexico pretty easily. I, and I've, and they, they even talked about the time in Ring of Honor. I, you know, that was the, I'm going to say it was the first Ring of Honor show I ever went to. Because they had called me, that was the first night I did something with Bobby Heenan, I believe a, a uh, <clears throat> oh God, it was at the, um, 
Rexplex or something up there in New Jersey. And the main event that he was in was this big multi-man cage match, and they actually had footage and they talked about it, that Teddy just went into business for himself, which is what he does all the time. And I mean, he's an amazing athlete, and he can work. I saw in, in 2019, what, three years ago, a couple of matches in MLW where he can work, but he's just, you could tell by this, he's a mental case in that he can't stop talking about himself like he is really a gimmick. He is really a gimmick, but he can't do anything except that. And and he does bizarre things that make no sense. So he, in the Ring of Honor show, he gets up on this huge cage and does a fucking backflipping shooting star press onto a bunch of guys on the floor. And then he, I've told this story before on the show, it's been a while, but then he got back in the cage and he climbed up again and he did a moonsault off the top of the cage and landed on his feet in the ring. It was goddamn amazing. And then he climbed up the other side and he did the same thing. And then he started moonsaulting off the, and then he, he has made himself so ill from all this exertion. I swear to God. He climbed the cage and was up over the top of the cage and then just projectile vomited over the top of the cage out onto the front row and people were ducking and running. And then he turns around so he doesn't vomit on any more of the fans and he threw up from 20 feet up in the cage, into the ring. And there were still more matches. And they said that CM Punk almost fought him that night, but I remember, and I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I was the one that was holding Samoa Joe back from going to kill him because he's got to go out and work in a fucking puke-filled ring now. And he was, what the, you little fucking prick? What the fuck's the matter with you? And I've got both arms around Samoa Joe's shoulders and go, Joe, don't kill him. And that actually came up in the locker room in MLW a couple years ago. I didn't bring up that night, but I said, I remember I was there. And I told him, I said, I was hanging off of Samoa Joe, I was afraid he was going to come grab you. And he, ah, fuck Joe. I'd have kicked the shit out of Samoa Joe. He thinks he's goddamn <laughs> Teddy Gracie. He literally said that. He said, I'd have fucked Samoa Joe up. Yeah. And then you would have woke up and apologized, you little fucking slime ball. You know, I mean, he's got, and that's the thing. He's not, his real name isn't even Hart, but he is doing more damage to the Hart family legacy than, than any of the actual real hearts and all of their weirdness. I think they'd rather have Smith back in his heyday now than have to deal with Teddy. One of the most amazing moments in the documentary series is when his dad, BJ Annis, Talks about, it's it's the most honest statement ever. He just says, if that girl was my daughter, Teddy would be behind bars. But Teddy's my son, and we got him the best lawyer because we're going to make sure he doesn't go behind bars. Yeah. And it was just so cut and dry and so honest. And, and you know, it, it's kind of crazy to hear. It's kind of crazy to see Teddy have parents who seem parents. relatively normal considering yes. the time around wrestling they had. And well, and his mother, uh, Georgia, that's Georgia, right? I believe so. Yeah. One of, one of Stu's daughters. I mean, she looks almost like, well, you can tell the heart, the heart voice and the heart smile. And, and she had a little bit of like, uh, 
you know, the heart family women in her as far as just, you know, but she seems normal. BJ Annis, as you said, older man seems normal and just, you know, they're sitting there with this delinquent 40-year-old son of theirs in their house dressed like an imbecile and talking about, you know, well, yeah, he just, he's his own worst enemy. He's just kind of fucked up, you know. Whatever the fuck. Just... Oh. The sad thing is he will get booked. I'll promise you he'll get booked because for the same reason, Chase and Rance is still hanging on and wrestling with his, whatever those sleazy videos are. Do you think Smoky Mountain could have stayed oh. in business if you had just done underwear videos and Ricky and Robert had sold yeah. them to creepy people yeah. via mail order? That's another thing. He actually tried to defend their wrestling school basically shoots private videos for people without a crowd in the, in the arena so that they can watch the, the, the sweaty men put fucking holds on each other or whatever, however it was. And they showed a clip or two of that. And this is what they're up. So that's a perfect place to send a young, impressionable, foreign citizen from Canada into that fucking cesspool. But look, it's the rare dirtbag who gets busted for everything around wrestling and just disappears forever. It never happens. And no one goes away. Everyone hangs on in one way or another. So I'm sure he'll be around. You know, the documentary is interesting in a few respects. The footage is incredible. WWE is a producer on this. Kevin Dunn was executive producer. He's one of the listed executive producers. Well, and by the way, and, and Stace said the same thing. She said, Kevin Dunn's name is on this. If the WWE has any involvement in a, in a production for television or streaming or video or whatever, Kevin Dunn's name goes on it, whether he's ever even seen the thing or heard about it. That's part of the deal. I'm not saying he doesn't ever work on anything, but his name is on everything. Sort of, sort of like when the art director of MGM was Cedric Gibbons. He had more movie credits than anybody else in the history of Hollywood, but he didn't actually sew every single costume. But at the end, it felt almost like a WWE thing. The guy basically said, I concluded Teddy had nothing to do with Samantha Fiddler's death. <laughs> but the whole thing is like up to that point, teasing, I think he may have done this. I think he may have done this. At what point also did that guy, and you know, he's lucky he was able to sell this, at what point did that guy decide he was going to make himself the focus of the whole fucking thing? Well, yeah. The people I was watching with here in my house, my family, everyone had the same reaction. You know, this guy's becoming a little much already. It's all about him now. Well, and it's when it's all about the filmmaker, but at the, you know, at the same time, there were not a lot of baby faces in this. The filmmaker, Teddy Hart, most people around Teddy Hart, the victims are a different story. I think but Mr. Money was the baby face of the whole thing. Mr. Money, the cat, was the baby face of the whole thing. But and here again, folks out there, if you're impressionable and you've, you're looking for something and you don't know what to do with your life and, you know, something comes along like this for this poor girl that, oh, I can be a big wrestling star and here's a guy who's a name. Look at it two or three times. Don't fall for this shit. It, it, that's the one thing about Teddy Hart. You know, if you're a normal, well-adjusted fucking person that doesn't believe bullshit, then you would look at him and roll your eyes. But when you're confused or disoriented or 
lost or looking for something, you know, I can see where maybe you would believe some of this shit, but eh, good Lord. Look at what's in front of you. Will there ever not be a person in Western Canada selling that they could teach you the secrets of the heart dungeon? Will that always be a trade for someone? Well, it, I mean, at some point in 20 or 30 years, you know, maybe that will subside, but... Hey, was the biggest pop the introduction of the character Bill and then him looking at the camera to try <laughs> to show off on his ATV and then flipping it over on himself? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that he, and, and we didn't find out what happened to Bill. Actually, he looked more together in his sit-down interview than he did when Teddy had ended. Teddy ends up living with some fucking guy named Bill. and Who bailed him out. Who bailed him out of jail. And then Teddy wouldn't leave. Sounded like a Dr. Jerry Graham story. And then they found the guy several years later, and he seemed like maybe he had straightened up whatever was wrong with his life when Teddy was living with him. But I, I, I mean, if you just look at this cast of characters involved in this whole thing, you go, why in the world would anybody want to be a part of this or buy any of this pap pap, you know, beyond any of the specific characters, you know, one of the interesting things I wanted to get your perspective on was just the idea that this was a little bit of an exposure about how many fans there are who love wrestling, but don't know anything. Anyone who thinks Teddy Hart was going to help their career doesn't yeah. know anything, and they're paying him. And even when you saw the training that Samantha Fiddler was allegedly getting at the dojo or the Vision Dojo, whatever the fuck it is, what a stupid name, it looked like she didn't know anything. I mean, she was trying hard, but like, did they teach her any basics, or was it just, okay, here's how you run the ropes. All right, you have not mastered that. Let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> like, what kind of training are these people? How many people are getting suckered? into spending money on being around wrestling or being wrestlers, and they, they have no chance, and they have no clue what's going on. Well, see, a lot of people forget that, again, you know, there's a ton of people that follow everything on wrestling, on Twitter and on the internet, and live their life on it, and know everybody's ins and outs. And there's a lot of other people who are the, the people who walked up to Kurt Angle in the airport after he joined TNA and say, Hey, uh, you know, what have you been doing since you quit wrestling? Cause they don't know. And, and that's the type of person that gets preyed on us. So they, they get sent down to team vision dojo in Florida so that they can do, it's a, it's a fucking private porn studio. And the, I guess, like I said, the, this guy books, rings and or potentially students out for these outlaw shows that are run by his friends and he stays back under assumed names or out of the picture or whatever because he's hot because he's a convicted sex offender apparently do you think it's a good investment if you're someone who's part of the dregs of society to buy a ring because you'll always be able to rent it to someone you will always be able to rent it to some low-class goof yes and Teddy could have used that ring up in Edmonton or wherever he was then. But anyway, so it's it's very, I can't say entertaining, doc. it's a very interesting documentary. The cat juggling, what the fuck was that? I train cats to juggle. I've never seen anyone else do yes. that. Does anyone else do that? I don't know if cat juggling is a big... Now, they used to have possum juggling at the Possum Day Parade back in Pixley. Were there three possums, ago. or was it just one you throw in the air and twirl around and catch? I, I'm not sure. It, it depended on the, on the individual possum juggler. But 
And the, the filmmaker thought, oh, this is the real key to this being a reality show. He's a wrestler, and he's weird, but he also juggles cats. Hey, listen, the filmmaker had some sort of thing going on with cats. He's like, I'm a filmmaker. I do whatever it was, Kitty TV here in Canada. And also, like, in his office, there were giant pictures of cats everywhere. So, I mean, I don't know what his deal is. Well, it wouldn't be the first time a little pussy contributed to a man's downfall. But the cat juggling and the cat breeding... The Rolling Stone article said he was dealing drugs. They never even touched that subject. They stayed completely away from that. <laughs> I got news for you. If you're a little five foot six munchkin like Teddy Hart with no fucking money and no place to live, it, it, if there are drugs involved, that's the only way you're going to get these women. You know, you can tell WWE produced this. They mentioned every single, and I'm not saying it's probably good that he wasn't mentioned. They mentioned every single nationally known Hart family member except Owen. You know, and that's and there actually was a picture of Owen on the screen at one point. They didn't even reference him. So, nevertheless, I'm sure none of the Hart family wants to be referenced around Teddy at this point. So, if if anybody has some free time this week, get it while it's hot over there on the Peacock. They had a quote on the screen at the very beginning when they talked about he was the youngest guy signed and the youngest guy fired by WWE, <laughs> and had a quote that he was uncoachable. You were. I mean, that was the Funkin' Dojo, right? That was that period of time. You were there. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's been in and out. Uh, they kept trying because of who he was, who he's related to. They gave him several opportunities. But yeah, that uh, the original time was he still came to the Funkin' Dojo up at the uh, studio in Stamford. And then I think one more time they sent him to, was it Florida Developmental? I don't... I know, they showed a couple of clips of him in OVW, and I swear to God, man, you know what? That was probably 2006, right after I was gone, because I never saw Teddy Hart in OVW or in the Davis Arena or any of the whole time I was there. But there were back and forth a couple of times. Yes, youngest hire and youngest fire. Of course, then I don't know whether he's still the youngest or not, because Rene Dupree came along and he was 18. And I'm not sure when Mike Mondo got a developmental deal because he was only 18 or 19 when he came to our OVW tryout camp. So that, but he's still probably the youngest guy ever fired. And then they brought him back, did something else, and that didn't last long either. He just won't do what he's told or even what he ought to do instinctually or whatever. And you can't ever figure out what he's going to be into outside the ring. What did you think as a fan, as a booker, and as a promoter of the various independent clips of Teddy whenever he could actually get booked in this? And there were just cats all over the ring at several points. Mr. Money was on the top turnbuckle. Yeah, I I mean... Multiple valets, everyone's holding a cat. I mean, what did you think of the whole thing? Yeah, he's got got girls and cats. The, The thing that came through above all else is that Teddy, in his own mind, and he may be the only person in the world to think this, but he believes that he should have been the biggest star in the wrestling business and that he is the most talented. And what I can't remember one comment that he made, but he was talking about if I got the chance to show what I can do and transform the wrestling industry and all this stuff. He is convinced and that he is that great. And he's not. Everybody knows that except Teddy. He had a wrestling school when he was a teenager. They had footage of that too. Yes. And he was part of that. They were going to do a teenage wrestling thing up there in Calgary where all, all the wrestlers were teenagers and everybody did flips. And then I think before it got too far as a business, somebody realized, well, we'll be fucking 
civilly liable till the cows come home if anything happens to any of these people. Uh, but but he's and I'm not saying he sucks. He's a, an amazing athlete for all the flips and the springboards and the balance. He's an amazing athlete. Period. As far as a wrestler, he can work when he wants to. So can a lot of guys. He's not really tremendously special as a wrestler. He can't fucking cut a promo except if he's, you know, being himself, which is sometimes counterproductive. But. So he's, you know, not the worst, not the best, but certainly doesn't suck. But my God, too, there's something going on. You can tell the way he talks, the way he's constantly wired up, whether he's on something or not. And the way that he thinks that, you know, there's something going on mentally that probably needs medication to address. And if you're a female wrestler out there and you somehow meet him, there's nothing he could do to help your career. Don't fall for that <laughs> shit. What could he do to help your career ever? When in his career could he have done something to help your career? I, I don't know that there's a point in time that, because for the last 10 years, everybody's worked for, he's been on kind of probation. He couldn't help anybody else when they're looking at him sideways, like just fuck up once, motherfucker, we're expecting it. It's not the last 10 years. It's the last 20 something years. He was in well, developmental what? in the late nineties. Where was he yeah. steadily employed after that ever? Cats. He bounced from one <laughs> thing to another. He should have been in the Broadway production of Cats. He, he was in the chorus line. He would have gone into business for himself in the middle of the play. It would have been great. All right. But anyway, so that's that. Should we go from, from one person getting media attention in a negative way to the other person getting media attention in a positive way? And uh, talk about, I know everybody's been upset that we we didn't talk about the media scrum after the AEW pay-per-view, and that's because we were saving it for last week's drive-through because you and I both wanted to talk about this, and then that show did not take place. So yes, this is old news now, but still, well, if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. But MJF made quite a uh, quite an appearance and quite a uh, stir at the media scrum not in the way that punk did a few months ago but in his own way and do we have any of that we're going to play for the folks i do have that here and the aew feed kind of misses the first bit of it so we're going to use this audio from youtube the denise salcedo youtube channel check that out here's mjf at the post full gear media scrum You wait your turn, baby. People pay to see me, not you. Let's talk, shall we? AEW is now destination television once again. The ship has been steered properly once again. This belt is now the most important belt in this entire sport. And it states the three letters. And it damn sure ain't AEW. I know for a motherfucking fact it ain't MOX. It's MJ. F. God damn you, people are fucking dumb, man. No offense. <laughs> no offense. You had sympathy for the devil? What are you, fucking stupid? You morons bit on every single word I had to say this past couple of months, huh? I want to earn it. I want to fuck that. I deserve <laughs> it because I'm the best wrestler in the fucking world. And every single one of you know it. On the microphone, in the ring, nobody can touch me. That's a fact. Nobody is on my level. And then, to think you guys still believe me when I put over this motherfucker this past Wednesday? Ah, Grow the fuck up. No offense. Grow up. 
Now let's talk a little bit, huh? Uh, MJ. Let me stop for one second. He was referring to Tony Khan there for anyone who's not seeing the visual here. Because he put Tony Khan over after Dynamite and that footage went viral and people said, oh, we've never seen MJF do anything like this. Well, that was all part of lulling everyone into a false sense of security now, wasn't it? It appears so. Let's go back to MJF. MJF, what's going on with you and Regal? You know, we're all really interested. What's going on? How'd that link up start? You think I'm going to tell you, dumb motherfucker? Huh? <laughs> with 70,000 fucking hardcore marks watching at home jerking off in their grandma's basement? Huh? <laughs> to my velvet voice? You think I give a shit? No, if you want to know anything about the most important man in professional wrestling, you gotta tune in to the MJF show. That's every Wednesday on TBS. And you know damn well that is now Destination TV. Now, here's what's gonna fucking happen. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to get all of Moxie's disgusting hepatitis A through Z off of me. <laughs> and then in the morning, I'm going to do what nobody else on the roster does because I'm the only real fucking star here. I'm going to hop on a jet and I'm going to go to my goddamn movie set. Anybody got any questions? Huh? Just kidding. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. <laughs> Check fucking out, baby. And there it is, Jim. Obviously, a lot of people wanted to get your thoughts on, in general, what he said, but the ending is one of the things everyone's been talking about. Well, now, and as a matter of fact, I had a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people getting in contact with me saying, is this a case for Stephen P. New? Is this a case for newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084? And I say, no, because even though Thank You, Fuck You, Bye is trademarked, he has permission to use it anytime he wants to, especially when he's talking to the people in AEW and or the people that cover that same promotion. Uh, I will give him a 100-year license to use it anytime he wants. So there will be no legal action. I'm sure. But send a check. Send a check since you're, you're making movies now, MJF. Send a check. But uh, I'm sure there's going to be enough legal action in AEW upcoming for everybody without me having to sue MJF. But again, that's how you talk, because it's not like they're real press there to begin with. We've covered this. There's nobody there from fucking the New York Times or the Washington Post. It's fucking this website and that website, and everybody got free tickets and is happy to be there so that Tony, Tony, Tony Khan, Tony. or Tony Cohn, <laughs> Tony Khan, can sit there and, you know, enjoy having his fantasy wrestling league do a press conference. MJF comes out there and does exactly what he should have. You fucking bit on it, you suckers, you gullible idiots. This is exactly what I wanted all along, and now I've got it, and fuck you, and I'll see you later. And that was brilliant. And all I'm sure all the, you know, the... The Jungle Boys and the the fucking Buckaroos and all them, they can come out and go, oh, we had such a good time putting this match together with all of our friends. But now MJF is the guy, since Punk is gone, MJF's the guy that wants to do business and wants to be a professional and wants to get bigger. So they'll have to be figuring out a way. He's apparently outlasted the attempt to stab him in the back and cut his nuts off by switching him babyface. Because that apparently ain't happening now. It would be odd if it did now. But uh, he's too good 
and he's two over, so they're going to have to figure out a way to nip that in the bud, those EVPs. In the meantime, that was a uh, a stirring rendition of a go-fuck-yourself promo, and that's exactly what was called for at that point in time. I completely agree. Great job, and it's a great visual for anyone who sees it. There are plenty of videos out there of it, and... There's nothing else to add to it. It was fantastic. <laughs> I had nothing else to say except thank you, fuck you, bye. Oh, I can't do that. We're not finished with the show. Tony has a good poker face. Tony sat there, didn't sell anything. Did you see one of the clips on Twitter a day or two ago from one of the media scrums? It's either, it's, a, it's they've blown in, they've gone close in on Tony's face, right? And the caption the guy wrote was, Oh, these shrooms aren't doing anything at all. Wait a minute. I'm going to book a zabba dabba 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 And you see Tony's eyes and his face just darting back in this video from one side to another. It looks like, my God, the shrooms have just kicked in. I did not see that video, no. That it's, it's, uh, so Tony's face, I think some camera ought to be dedicated. Just lock it down. And dedicate a camera to Tony's face in the press conference. Because no matter what's being said, there's some shit going on behind those eyes. All right, should we talk about what's going on behind Tony's back and talk about last Wednesday's Dynamite real quick? Uh, we could talk about that. It's going on behind his back. And I guess in front of millions of viewers. Or, well, not millions. Well, a million. Well, not a well, million. A lot of viewers. There are lots and lots well, of people watching wrestling on Wednesday night. Well, there's a few, and they were in Chicago on Thanksgiving Eve, and I say that a lot of this shit's going on behind Tony's back because you can't tell me that he's that crazy that he will okay this if they told him they were going to do it beforehand. I will, I'll talk about it when we get there. Let me ask you this question, first of all, before we start. Did they just say it's the night before Thanksgiving? Just fuck it. Let's just fill the time up. It doesn't matter what we put on. Or were they serious with this? That's what I'm asking you. I think this was a loaded show for the fantasy <sighs> booking mind of Tony Khan. Well, we won't know because of the Thanksgiving weekend. We won't know until the drive through what the ratings were for this. But they can hope that nobody watched it. Because, gee, many... Uh, <laughs> It's the week after the pay-per-view. So, obviously, the thing on everybody's mind is MJF and Regal. What the fuck happened? How are they going to explain this? What's going to be said? What's going to go on? So, because MJF was legitimately, apparently, from what we understand, on the movie set, he's Lance Von Erich in The Claw, MJF wasn't there. They showed the VTR at the top of the program of him, him winning and how Regal passed him the knucks. And then here comes William Regal. And he comes out, and it was classic heel regal from the start and this was the best thing that they could put on the opening of the program when they theoretically have the most viewers and regal is just he's great i mean he has the shit sniffing face and the condescending attitude and the crowd was into their fuck you regal and i don't know if you played george carlin's seven dirty words routine on a fucking loop if I've ever heard the word fuck on any type of television network as much as I've heard it on TBS over the last few weeks with the fans who are determined to get them 
kicked off television. But nevertheless, he basically says that he sent an email to MJF and, and MJF is going to be there next week on TV to explain it all. It all, it all stems from an email that he sent to MJF and MJF's going to be there next week to explain it all. And of course the people boo that, but then here comes Moxley and the music and the walk through the crowd. And he's taking his time. And as soon as he gets in the ring, he's going to go for Regal, but Danielson from the other side comes through and stops Moxley. And they start shoving each other. And Danielson's thing is, now wait a minute, you've done bad things too. Please, please, he's got a bad neck, two brain bleeds. Don't hurt him. And I know that somewhere, either Tony is convinced or the Blackpool Combat Club is convinced that this is gripping television but basically what happened was regal stands there he doesn't back up because he's the heel and he's just fucked the world champion out of the title and he can't have he can't be touched or it'd take all the heat off of him and at the same time he shouldn't run from the guy but the guy's the mad ex-world champion show so he should kind of run except Danielson, Moxley's friend and partner, loves William Regal and is talking Moxley out of beating up William Regal and slapped Moxley and then said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the story of why Danielson is trying to tell Moxley not to hurt William Regal is because when Danielson, Danielson actually said, when my father had your struggles, I guess with alcohol or whatever that was not stated the only person who could teach me was this man pointing to regal i was able to love my father because of this man and the crowd starts chanting bullshit and actually i wanted to join him and danielson says i love william regal and so moxley his Cold black heart was touched by this. And he says to Regal, Moxley does, I only want one thing from you. I want you to run. Regal doesn't make any goddamn move at all. And then he says, far away and never come back. Walk and keep on. So what is it? Is it walk or run? First it was run, then walk. And finally, Regal backed out and slowly walked away. So what they did in this segment was they took some of Regal's heat away, they buried Moxley, and they turned Danielson heel. Explain to me how that this couldn't have been done by having Moxley and Regal on VTR from the movie set or wherever saying, Hey, we're on a movie set and we're going to be back next week to explain this. And then have Moxley come out and cut a promo saying, I'm going to kill William Regal when I see him and have Danielson come out and stop him with the same story. If you've got to tell that story, because then Moxley's not standing there with his dick in his hand while Regal's standing there, not running or doing anything. And Danielson doesn't have to tell this 
story that didn't get over with the people to begin with while the guy they want to see get his ass kicked is standing there in the ring. I mean, I, did everybody look like a putz here in some respect or another? Absolutely. It made no sense. None of this makes any sense. And I actually, and maybe I'm wrong, and we'll see this week. We'll find out this week. There's a chance that was the last appearance of William Regal in AEW. I know that sounds crazy, but there's a chance of that. He's going back to WWE. If that was the soft exit they gave him to appease his friends like Moxley and himself, then fuck all of them. Because that was bad TV, it made no sense, and it furthers nothing. Now, if it leads to him coming out next week with MJF, and they do something other than something with Moxley, it'd be great. But Moxley has to get even with Steven Regal or William Regal. I mean, the booking of this whole thing makes no sense. That's why I kind of think it feels like some sort of soft exit that was thrown together at the last minute. It doesn't feel, it makes no sense. Well, Solomon Whether MJF's Grundy, there or not. Solomon Grundy and I, last week, I believe it was, on one of the programs we did without you, we were talking about... It, Triple H and, and Regal had been close for years, and Regal had all kinds of responsibility in Triple H's NXT and anything he's had anything to do with, and now Triple H is on a spree bringing back everybody that was let go by his father-in-law, and you can't tell me that he wouldn't want Regal, whether he could have him or not, you can't tell me he don't want him back. And we were talking about, Brian Solomon and I were talking about, well, how long was his contract? Was it, he came in about a year ago. Was it a year? Was it longer? Or potentially, is he wanting to get let out of it? Who knows? But now that they've done this, they've got an opportunity to have Regal, who's got heat with these people, get even more heat on MJF. But if this was, Okay, you've served your purpose, but we know where you want to go, so we'll just let Moxley scare you off. That has that help MJF in any way? How does it that help doesn't. Danielson in any way? It doesn't. Danielson looks like a fucking putz for coming out and taking up for the guy that everybody wants to see get the shit kicked out of him. Moxley shouldn't, nobody should touch Regal yet. That's why you shouldn't have had the situation where Moxley had the ability to touch him if he'd have. Wanted to till Danielson talked him out of it, and I, I just the whole fucking thing. Where were Claudio so, and Yuta? Yeah, where was useless? They've been a part he of every single and... segment. All of a sudden, they're not involved with William Regal now. You've got a scary track record, Brian. Is all I'm going to say of being right lately. And so, if you are on this one, uh, but <sighs> there could be something good here. But if Regal's decided he wants to go back to the promised land and, and get out of romper room, that would be a way out. Hey, if Moxley's mad at Regal and he's going to confront him in the ring, how about you come out without your fucking music and your whole entrance? <laughs> how about you show that you're mad instead of that you show that you're going to do the same fucking promo you always do? No, because it would kill his whole career if he didn't play Wild Thing and come out through the people. The best is, remember when they... They didn't get the right wild thing, and they had the Trogs, the original version everyone yes. loves. 
And Moxley's in the ring while there's a flute solo. <laughs> Nothing will ever beat that. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't, it feels like coming out of that pay-per-view, if MJF was not going to be there, out of all the things they could have done, this is the one that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, you dice it, it doesn't make sense. What happened here with Regal and Moxley? Well, nevertheless, we'll find out more next week. Renee Moxley Good was with Keith Lee and asked him, where's your head at, Keith? And Keith Lee took a deep breath and then Swerve walked in from two feet away. Because <laughs> that's the whole thing. They've broken up now. This long-lasting team. They were together, what, two months? Jesus. I think a few months. Well, maybe three or four months. They got matching gear in the last couple months, but they were together a little longer. Yeah, they well, they had time to get matching stuff made before they broke up. But anyway, he can't answer because Swerve walks in, even though he's obviously been standing there the whole time off camera. And Renee Moxley Good just whoop, and walks away. And Swerve takes off his glasses. And Keith Lee takes off his warm-up jacket. And Swerve reaches out and puts his hand over the camera lens. But there's still a microphone on. And he says, let's talk. And Keith says, okay. And they're out. That was it. Then we come to the next match. For the A&P Championship, Jake Hager against Pockets. Seriously. They put this on television. And not only is it visually ridiculous, because and Hager was a, even though he's a rotten wrestler with no personality, he was an MMA guy. And he could fucking break pockets like a biscuit and eat him with or without honey all over the top of him. But in this case, pockets won the match. And they had a big hoop to do during the match over... Hager's purple hat. Jake Hager, in the words of the big cat, Ernie Lad, you are stealing from AEW Wrestling. Every time you cash your check, you are stealing from AEW Wrestling. When you're so worthless to the company that even the mascot beats you on television in the once every six months when you actually get to wrestle, how, how the fuck does that make Hager feel? Talk about keeping your talent happy. Anyway, nevertheless. He likes the check. <sighs> it's amazing he's getting one. Well, somehow, after all of this, the match was over. Then they had a blackout. And then spooky music came on. And then here, to a big pop from this crowd, on the stage was Stevie Nicks. I'm sorry, Julia Hart. But she looks just like Stevie Nicks in, in the day, and that is never a bad thing. But when the lights come on, the House of Black is in the ring behind the Puddin' Gang. I mean, there's Pockets, there's Muffin Top Taylor, there's Trent, whoever else is in that crowd. And they beat up, the House of Black did, all of the Puddin' Gang, while QT Marshall's factory was in the ring, too, and they stood there and applauded them for doing it. So then the House of Black beat up the factory, too. And then everybody went out to the floor where the security and job guys ran out and they beat them up too. And then one of them threw some guy off the stage, but the camera missed it. So you saw the wind up and then people went, Ooh, but you never saw. And then 
one of the House of Black characters dropped a guy on his head on the ramp in one of those old Steiner-like kind of sit-down pile driver things. And the people cheered and chanted, welcome back at these satanic heels. <laughs> so, so you had a match with a guy facing Jake Hager from the Jericho Appreciation Society. And the guy pockets and his crew won the match and then stayed in the ring so that the House of Black could come and beat them up. And the factory came down so they could get beat up too. And through all of this heat-getting stuff, the people chanted, welcome back to the heels that worship Satan. <laughs> and then Malachi Black spoke, and it all went to blah. And then they went to the break. This is like the first season all over again. This is like they're trying to get the dork order over again. Well, like you said, everyone gets a big pop on their first night back. They've been off TV for a while. Whatever hex Julia Hart has put on them, it caused them to rescind their request to be released from their contract, apparently. And we'll see how long this lasts. They've been involved in so much bad shit, so much missed mist, so much crap, crap promos, just crap, just a crap stable. And now they're going to feud with the best friends. So at least I know what segment I can fast forward. Well, there you go. Then they had they had a VTR package from the pay-per-view of Jungle Boy and Dino Douche. And Jungle Boy did the sit-down comments. He's still bloody in the locker room after the match. And even this guy, after a goddamn cage match, and he's bled, and he's in the locker room, and the emotion should be running high, he still sounds like a boring fucking doofus. So I think we've established he may be a boring fucking doofus. So, then they had the tournament final for the title shot that whoever wins the tournament is going to face MJF on December 14th. Winter is coming. They should have made it the 21st. That's the official winter solstice. And the tournament final was the other page. Well, huh? it's winter is coming, not winter is here. Well, can't it come in and then be there by the end of the show? That would be a good follow-up. Winter is coming, and the next week you do Winter has winter arrived. Winter is here! Yeah. That's right. Well, it's a cold match anyway. Um, the other page against Ricky Starks. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what the fuck they've done with Starks. The back and forth and hither and yon, and he was hurt and he was well and he was hurt again and he got beaten. Hobbs, his his friend Hobbs turned on him and they had two matches i think didn't he lose both of them and then they now hobbs is mad at samoa joe and wardlow for some reason i don't fucking know he lost the first one did he didn't he win like the street fight that was the second one they were both for whatever reason that we could not determine anticlimactic matches yes that is true well starks won this one so now he gets the title shot and they did some ridiculous bad comedy with Jane Cargill and the baddies and Mark Sterling. One of the baddies was fired by the lawyer. Kiara Hogan. Yeah, she she's no longer required because she didn't live up to her baddie agreement. Quite frankly, she was the best one for the whole Jade show that comes out there. She was the little one that could get the heat and take the bump. So big mistake. 
Well, I'm not sure that's going to be the only mistake they make so far tonight. Um, all right, the one everybody was talking about up next. We hear the the strains of Kansas, and it got big boos because they're in Chi Town, they're in Chicago, and here come the douchebags. I mean, the EVPs, the EVPs in the best of seven series for the six-man tag team title twinkle toes and the buckaroos uh, with don Fallis and knock it off and cutlet against the bermuda triangle penthouse and felix and pack and i mentioned last week i call them the bermuda triangle because they're always lost and we're expected to see another one of these they're going to do this apparently five more times so as soon as these knuckleheads get in the ring it's chicago the cm punk chance breakout so kansas gets turned way up the announcers start talking to where as soon as somebody finishes a sentence by the time the period is implied out of their mouth the other announcer is jumping in the music crossfaded quickly to the bermuda triangles music and they got them in the ring and for the rest of the match the crowd audio was way down. The announcers were up and trying to cover up for what might take place. And again, I'm not even going to talk about the match because I didn't watch it because it, it, why? It's the same fucking thing. But when you zip through it, you see further evidence that Tony has lost complete control of this whole situation. There's Matt Buckaroo vaulting over the top like the buckshot lariat but when he lands he falls on his ass and sells his foot oh golly like cm punk did and then the camera caught him and a fan camera caught him even better they got a little section of their buckaroo fans to start chanting fuck cm punk even in chicago so that one of them was down there on the floor leading those chants saying come on come on come on it needs to be louder and we've talked about this before with the Cabana thing, bringing Cabana out of goddamn nowhere to wrestle Jericho so Jericho can laugh and say he got one over on Punk with all the fucking backstage maneuvering he's been doing trying to get Punk out of there. And now the the the, the buckaroos are pissed off because they got their asses handed to them. And which one got his eye closed up? Which one just got his bell rang? I can't remember. Nevertheless. The eye closed up was Balding Buck. Okay. The older one. Sockeye Buck. Sockeye Buck. What they're going to do, Tony Khan has not extricated himself from this situation. He has still got a, a valid contract with CM Punk that not only says he's got to pay him a certain amount of money, but I'm sure there's royalties for merchandise. There's all that stuff in there. They got a video game coming out. And I saw that somebody said that maybe they're going to take Punk's picture off the cover. Well, how hard is it to take a motherfucker out of a video game once he's in it? Or do they still need some type of relationship to not screw up other things? And here Tony is letting these fucking little pampered, smug, nitwits who are constantly in need of having their pussies powdered inflame and instigate a fucking guy who does not like being disrespected publicly to begin with before the out 
is, is done and the ink is dry. So, again, the more they do this, the more they try to piss Punk off. All he's got to do is say, okay, fuck it. I'll file this lawsuit. And then he's got a lot of people's balls in his fucking hands. And there's a lot of shit that they ain't going to want to fucking hear. Getting out in public is going to get out in public. And anybody in their right mind in any court of law would defend the independent contractor over the executive vice presidents in this incidence, an instance, even without their shady background with other people. So all they're doing is poking the bear and pissing him off, and Tony's going to be the one to have to explain to his father, to his legal team, Mega and the rest, to the network, to whoever gets involved in the litigation. Well, yeah, he wasn't going to sue. I guess we could have worked it out, but my self-chosen EVPs wouldn't quit fucking with him on national television, so now he's suing us. That'll be a good message to deliver. And wh why is it that we hear all that? We, we, all we've heard from Punk's side, in quotes, is Uncle Dave, you know, the, the uncle of the buckaroos, is that, well, Punk's side is said to not be happy about this. But we see the other side on national TV assing off like six-year-old kids. So does this again cast all the other talk about, well, who was doing what behind whose back and who was doing what in front of people? Does that call all that into question again? Now let's let's re-examine all that shit a little bit. I believe So that, anyway. I believe that was also ahead. the day that an article was published with an interview with Kenny Omega. It was a puff piece, but it was him basically saying the fans should let it go. Let this all go. Yes. And then they go out there and it's not it's not between us and CM Punk. We should let this all go. And then his two jack-off friends go out there and start leading the self-picked fans at a fuck CM Punk channel on television. So anyway, we just saw this fucking match. And the Buckaroos were trying to be the heels since the crowd was booing the shit out of them anyway. And the match was an immediate six-way and all over the floor, and they had the corpse referee and the same foolishness they always do. And finally, Cutlet gave Matt Buckaroo a hammer, but before he could use it, Penthouse got in with his own hammer and hit Matt Buckaroo in the back of the head and or the top of the head and pack pinned him. So now the the EVPs are down two to zero. Oh. Because they're trying to babyface themselves by saying, oh, we don't mind doing jobs. As long as somebody hits me in the head with a hammer first. Yeah, to our only friends who are willing to work yeah. with right now. To the only... And here's another... Boy, they better make this a best of seven series. Where's the next great six-man tag team challengers? House of Black. <laughs> well, of course. That's exactly why they came back. So that they can have more... Fun matches with their friends. The friends that wanted to leave the company a while back. And bear with me on this, though. One more thing and we'll move on. Bear with me on this, Brian. You won't have to Google this. A lot of the other folks in the audience might. But does Kenny Olivier remind you of what the, the progeny would be, what the offspring would look like if there was a love-child combination 
between 80s fitness icon Richard Simmons and 70s pop oddity Leo Sayer. <laughs> you know, I, can, didn't, I did not expect a Leo Sayer comment here. Can you, can you see it? <laughs> Definitely the dance moves of Leo Sayer, I would yes, say. Yes, it's like 70s, 80s, <laughs> and today. The nutrition is better. Kenny's a little thicker than both those guys, but the hair, the expression, the mannerisms. All righty. Then we've had another... Hey. I just wanted to say, I watched that match with my brother who was here, and he, again, a wrestling fan when he was younger, hasn't watched in years, doesn't have any interest, but he was curious what I was watching, and he watched most of Dynamite with me. Two things that he couldn't get past. One, the referee standing there while everything happened, (laughs) not counting, not doing anything, and when he did count, took 10 seconds between one and two. Yeah. And then also, he called it out. You know, I'm not a big fan of sequence wrestling, and that's what this is. That's what the Young Bucks do. It's a bunch of sequences. I mean, every match, Nick and Ray Phoenix, I'm going to hold your hand and I'll run over here and jump this way and then you jump. Every match, sequence wrestling. But he found, and again, he hasn't watched this shit in years. He goes, where are those other guys? How come everyone disappeared? Yeah, yeah. Why are those guys on the floor? Yeah, he called it out. Everyone waiting for their spot to run in and do the sequence. It looks bad to someone who doesn't watch. Hey, hey, in MLW, Penthouse and Felix were there, right? And I saw them do this live for the first time, and now apparently they do it in every match. But they will do that double-team thing off the top rope where one guy stomps the other guy, is holding him or whatever the fuck, boom. And then the guy that did the stomp or whatever off the top jumps up, hits the ropes, and runs and dives out of the ring onto somebody that just happens to be standing on the floor in the right place, right? Every fucking time. And the first time I saw him do it, they're not even smart enough to realize they they step on their own finish. They that was the the double team move was their finish. Boom. And as the guy gets up and goes to cover the guy that they flattened, the other guy hits the ropes and does the dive. Well, the camera's following the dive and they missed their own finish. And then I said, Well, certainly they'll never do that again. They do the same goddamn thing every time. Hit this move, guy hits the ropes, dives out on the floor on some guy that just happens to be standing in the right place. And everybody follows that. Nobody sees the the pin or the whatever the fuck they're doing with the other thing. But it's got to be, if you watched wrestling 20 years ago and then have not seen any of it, anything since then, and you watch something now, I think everybody can agree on this, regardless of whether you think that the shit these days is any good or not. Whoever was watching from 20 years ago hasn't seen anything and then watches this today has to, their only response can be, what the fuck is this? That was what it. What the fuck is this? That was pretty much it for several segments on the show, including this match. Jim, let me ask you this just to throw this out there because there are now fans saying it, so let's get your take on it. The Bucks featured the Fuxium Punk chant in the latest episode of their YouTube show, they led the chant here during the match. They mocked the buckshot lariat. Omega yeah. bit the arm of whoever he bit the arm oh, of. Oh, yes. One of, one of the opponents, yeah, he bit his arm. The fans, I think this is building up the return of CM Punk <laughs> with another, let's say, FTR or someone, but CM Punk at least, to feud with the elite. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it actually... It would be business. If they had that 
uh, lined up, laid out, then all this would be perfectly acceptable. And, and wishful thinking would indicate, you know, that everybody would want to see that, right? Oh, yeah, everybody gets back together. We have this big program. It draws all kinds of money. But what you are overlooking is the fact that these fucking douchebags don't want to draw money. They don't want anybody to jeopardize their position, their their company, their revolution, their movement. If anybody gets over or is more important than them or shows people that their wrestling is shit and that people still in larger numbers react to shit they can understand, that's bad. And that would have to you would have to assume that the buckaroos and twinkle toes were willing to work with a guy like punk who they've had heat with or that Tony would be willing to deal with a guy that's told him to go fuck himself or whatever. Now I know people are saying, well, Hey, Vince McMahon has put the WWF title on a dozen guys that said, fuck you to him or whatever. Right before that. Yes. Cause Vince was all about business. This is not business. This is fantasy booking by a billionaire boy child. And the incredible windfall that these self-trained, self-important, self-indulgent nitwits have fallen into by getting said billionaire boy child to fucking fund their goddamn vision of what this Fakakta wrestling is. And it ain't working. Because they're in the same place they were three years ago. But they've had tons more bad publicity. Ticket sales are going down. Ratings are going down. Everybody's getting in a fight backstage. And the only people in the locker room that have the pull with Tony to get him to do anything are the ones that are protecting their spots at the expense of Everything else. The show, the program, the promotion. The show, the program, the, the business, everything. So, yes, in a perfect world, this would all be a work, but it's not. And it's not going to be. And they don't have it in them to call Punk and say, all right, let's put this fucking behind us. Let's make some money. And let's, to be honest, besides the same group of people, you could probably get Punk and Olivier if if people thought there was goddamn real legitimate bad feelings, which there is. You could probably get a pay-per-view out of them. To have Punk in the same ring with the Buckaroos would just be bringing him down to their level. There's no money to be made there anyway, because the only people that would care would be the same people that's already watching the show. I think there are people who would pay thinking the idea they would love to see CM Punk get his hands on the Bucks. Because if you really think about it, even when they lose matches, no one ever gets his, their hands on the Bucks and just smacks them around and treats them like shit. I don't know. I think that anybody who dislikes the Bucks that bad would probably think, well, he already beat him up and for real and in a locker room. And why why should I pay to see it again for a work? But it, it, I mean, just there's no way if you noticed, I'm sure everybody did. CM Punk and neither of the Buckaroos ever crossed paths on camera during his entire time in that promotion. Right? The only thing I saw is apparently, and I think it must have been on their little YouTube show, when CM Punk debuted, they did a video of them making mocking faces of the reaction to CM Punk. 
Yeah. Backstage. That's the only thing I know yeah. of. Well, yeah, because that's where they were back doing their little YouTube thing, and he was doing the real television program. But there was never any interaction, because I'm sure that right off the bat, Punk said, I'm going to work with serious talent. There was never any interaction with Olivier either. But I'm not saying that if if people knew there's real heat and then they could get them to work, that might be interesting. And if Olivier is able to listen and do as he's told and be led, probably have the best match he's ever had with Punk because he wouldn't be doing all that fucking cheerleading routine bullshit. But I don't see any way in the world that Punk ever gets in the ring with the Buckaroos for any reason, working, shooting, or anything else because nobody would give a fuck. It would be ridiculous. Look at them and look at him. Nevertheless, hey, speaking of, go ahead. Forget it, forget it. What, what? I was going to say, part of the problem is we haven't heard CM Punk say shit. Everyone's, oh, CM Punk's side says this. CM Punk hasn't said anything. And I was going to say, why doesn't he just come out and say what's going on, but I realize he's still an employee. He's actually still confined to his contract, too. Yeah, and I don't believe they're making any inroads to a successful resolution when the guys that he's already beat up once are out there making fun of him on fucking television. Because he's got Tony's either going to have to pay him this money or, or he's going to have to bring him back and, and let him work. Between the issues here with Tony and Punk, where purportedly there's a buyout, but we haven't heard anything, anything about movement on that or anything in a long time now, and other stories about Tony maybe not necessarily having such a rosy time with other top talent that maybe some people are turning into divas. Do you think it's going to change the way Tony deals with talent and top talent? Well, I think something should have changed that a long time ago. I think Tony should have stopped dealing with top talent. Because it, I know there's some nice people, like a Mick Foley. Mick Foley would sit down with Tony Khan for hours and try to talk to him and teach him and give him advice and pitch ideas and work with him because Mick is the nicest human being in the world. But most top talent is either going to do one of two things with Tony Khan. They're either going to manipulate him for their own self and best interests because they know they can, because he wants to be everybody's friend. He has no experience with this. And he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and he can be easily led. Or the other section of top talent is going to go, okay, you're my boss and here, here's a handshake and boy, you're a nice guy, but don't talk to me about wrestling because that's, it's like you're a fucking grade schooler coming up and talking to a heart surgeon about a fucking bypass. They might try to pitch stuff to Tony, but it would be frustrating because they could see it was going over his head or whatever the fuck. So you've got the self-serving crew and you've got the, the group that it's just like, my God, can we talk to a real booker or a real wrestling person? We don't mind working for the guy, and he's a nice enough guy, but he's not qualified or equipped to tell us what we ought to be doing. You can't tell me that 95% of the wrestlers on the AEW roster do not fall into one or the other of those categories. I'd like to hear what the third category is. Oh, everybody's happy to be there and Going out and working their hardest, that's for all the guys in wrestling school. Because, yes, when optimally, 
You want everybody going out and working as hard as they can and being behind the promotion and excited about the momentum and all that stuff. But that's a perfect world. And this ain't a perfect world. And I can't imagine that anybody that is more than just somebody that's lucky to be being seen and paid would have any opinion otherwise than the, the two camps that I just mentioned. Uh, but you know who else we're not going to see around here anymore? Brian Lash, you know who we're not going to be able to kick around anymore? The governor of Kentucky. Well, besides with the ex-governor of Kentucky, John Y. Brown, who has passed away, in case you missed it at the top of the program, Thunder Rosa has been stripped, has forfeited the title for the quote-unquote by Renee Moxlegood for the benefit of all the women in AEW. <laughs> Thunder Rosa has been asked to forfeit the title. And she introduced the new, not interim, but the whole rim job, the whole thing, the whole shooting match. Will you stop it? The new women's champion, Jamie Hayter, along with Britt Baker and our girl, Reba. And this was actually halfway interesting, and it's as old as the hills, but goddamn, they're doing it well. These two, as soon as Jamie Hayter, the new champion, goes to speak, Britt Baker cuts her off and jumps in and does their promo for her and puts Jamie over, but is still acting like the, the big dog in the yard, and then they all go to the ring. So, obviously, eventually, Jamie is going to get tired of being spoken for and want to do her own talking and thinning around here, Baba Louie. So that's okay, because, you know, again, the people like Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker can cut a promo, and they're kind of interested in this. But then we go to the ring for a three-way tag team match. Baker and Hayter against Willow Nightingale and Blue Sky against... Ty, Melo Conti, and Anna Jay. And I know it's the night before Thanksgiving. It's time to be charitable. I'm not this charitable. Did I miss anything? I was in mourning. Okay. Oh, it could have been afternoon, even evening. You still wouldn't have watched it. Backstage with Renee Moxley Good. Here's FTR. In a backstage pre-tape, this fucking show has been abysmal. But we couldn't use the best tag team. To be and I want to apologize. Because I said last week or two weeks ago, I said, you know, we were talking about Jeff Jarrett. I said his value at this point is much bigger in the office to this company that would be in the ring. But if he's going to wrestle, give him fucking whatever every week and just let him do a job every week and just get guys over. Just do jobs for them, and they will have a better match than they've ever had, and they'll learn something. But I said at the time also, I said, because Jeff Jarrett is the best worker, talking about psychology and actual pro wrestling work on the whole roster, I forgot that was an error. Dax and Cash are on the roster, and they... Maybe not psychologically, only because they don't have the experience and they haven't been around as long, but their work is every bit as good as Jeff's, if not better now, because they're 20 years younger. Except you can forgive me for forgetting about them since I actually forgot they still worked here. Because, again, the apologists for the buckaroos just 
take at face value whatever the buckaroos say to them and then spread to their gullible and impressionable audience that, no, no, it's complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit that the buckaroos wouldn't put FTR over for the big rubber match when it counted, when they were getting over. No, that's just made up. Yeah. Yeah. Let me talk to you. Yeah. So FTR is backstage, and I swear this God, it, it, it writes itself. They are doing promos with Darius and Dante Martin. And they have to tell Darius and Dante, and this comes completely out of nowhere. There was no reason for this whatsoever. Hey, Dax says, you guys impress us, and we want you to be the, the tag team to take tag team wrestling to the future. You guys are great. Just apropos of nothing. And then the Martins say, well, you guys are great too, but we want to fight you for the Ring of Honor tag team title Friday night on Rampage. And actually, Friday night turned out to be Friday at 4 o'clock Eastern, I think, because of the sports schedule. And Cash actually had to say, well, we always liked you guys, but we never say no to a fight. So they all shook hands, and within 45 seconds, that's all you saw of the best tag team in the business. And they're fighting underneath guys on a throwaway weekday afternoon show on a holiday weekend. No, they're not being buried at all. The jealousy of these two numb-nutted fucking smug little fucking pricks <laughs> over two real adult men being better than they are at what they claim to be the best at knows no bounds. So. That promo was as interesting as watching a weather report for somewhere that you aren't at. Imagine, I'm, I'm in Tampa. Let's see what the weather is in Des Moines. You're not going to hang on every word. Then here comes the last best thing about this program. The acclaimed make their entrance. And the people popped big for Caster and his rap. And they do the live in-ring promo and the fans sing scissor me daddy or oi oi or whatever the fuck it is and it was a good fun promo they're having fun not in a they're silly but they're silly with each other they're not silly with their opponents they're not silly with people that they're supposed to be mad at and finally billy unwraps his fingers that have been <laughs> they've been maligned by swerve and his pliers and they go to scissor and then on the screen, suddenly Sanjay Dutt and Jay Lethal and Zippy the Giant Pinhead and Jeff Jarrett interrupt. And Jeff Jarrett tells the acclaimed to watch their backs. And then Billy says, well, I still got some pull around here, so get those assholes off our screen. And then they scissored and the music played and they all left hugging fans on the way out. The one time they dangle something, watch your backs. Okay, so as soon as they scissor and then get out of the ring, they're walking around ringside. I'm, I'm expecting somebody to come over the rail from behind their backs. Uh, they just walked out. They keep doing this thing, and it's already tiresome, where Jay Lethal and the other two numbskulls start doing their promo, and then Jeff Jarrett just walks in in the middle of it. I don't know if you heard it, but it was pretty loud. The yeah. TNA chant. As yeah. soon as he appeared on the screen. And that's exactly what I was afraid would happen. And that's exactly what's happening. Uh, Jeff needs to be in the office 
refereeing instead of in the ring wrestling. In the office refereeing. Yes. <laughs> and then finally, we were. it's time for our main event, ladies and gentlemen, for the Ring of Honor world title. How many weeks is this in a row now that Jericho has manipulated himself to get a main event and or a solid win, sometimes both at the same time, on this television program when other people go months and months without having two weeks in a row where they get a win? And this time it was Chris Jericho versus Tomohiro Ishii. All right. I'm against Jesus Christ. And like I said, remember, I said weeks ago, this is an excuse for Jericho to beat somebody on TV every week. And here now it's going to get interesting. Who will he lose to eventually and how? Or will he? Or if he does, will it benefit his next program more than the guy that wins the thing from him? But nevertheless, so it's Jericho versus Ishii. And I wrote, before the bell even rang, I bet they're going to stand there and slap each other's chests. I thought the same thing. Same thing. And they surprised me. No, they went with slapping each other's face first. And then they started slapping each other's chest. And this thing, for 15 minutes, while every disenfranchised wrestling fan that might flip by and see it is going, why is Jericho wrestling a baked potato? They did this, the, the strong style Japanese, whatever. And I kind of, I kind of like the idea of what Jericho did. If it had been with anybody that's actually regularly in the company and could ever mean anything on the program or could ever sell a pay-per-view or is ever going to be at a pay-per-view main event or is ever going to be in an important position anywhere instead of Ishii. But blading the chest for the chops, in theory, Obviously I don't know why somebody hadn't done it before. Well, it was... it. He obviously bladed his chest. It was right in front of the camera and then you watch him put it back in his pocket after he missed well, the yeah. pocket the first time. But also, and here's the thing, it, it can backfire because you can't control that, right? Sometimes there's a wide range of what you're going to get. And it was too much blood for, for chops. And that's because I was skipping through this. I wasn't watching intently. And because, you know, we know what it's going to be. But when I saw his entire chest covered with blood, I said, well, wait a minute, I backed up. And then I saw, you know, what happened. But again, Blading for something like that, if a guy, Volter, Gunther, boy, if they could do it in the WWF, that would be a thing to do. If he got in a ring with fucking Roman Reigns or Brock Lesnar, any major legitimate star, and fucking hit one of those goddamn rifle shot swings on somebody's chest and they got a little color off the chest, that would, that would be great. That'd be swell. If you, I don't care if you're if you're wrestling Tomohiro Ishii and you fucking explode a hand grenade up your own ass, it's wasted. Nobody's going to give a shit anyway, except the people that are already there that might know who this fucking ridiculous, broken down fucking crumb bum is. And I'm saying again, everybody, oh, he's so racist. No, if Tatsumi Fujinami got in the ring at the age of sixty 
and had been dropped on his head and spine and whatever, like Suzuki and Ishii and all these other Japanese legends that they bring over here and treat like they're working with a Fabergé egg, then, you know, that'd be one thing. But no. So, and again, you know, it, it was it was a great visual, bleeding from the chest. Use somebody that's full-time in the company to get juice for their shit and get that over rather than... And again, I don't... It's... It's appealing to the, it's making the boys happy and appealing to Tony Khan's own markishness. That all of these unheard of, why, here comes Shibata in sweatpants and a fucking t shirt. And everybody go, who the fuck is that that's watching television? They have narrow casted this to the point where it's just ridiculous. So, but yeah, well, you know, when Flair and Garvin, had the program for the NWA title. They loved it. They they enjoyed seeing how hard they could hit each other and seeing if either one of them was going to fucking flinch, Garvin through the overhand chops, flare through the knife edges. But the two differences were they didn't stand there and over and over allow each other to hit themselves. They did it in the context of a fight. And secondly, Nobody had to blade their chest. I've told this story before. When they worked every night after the first 20 or 25 matches in three, three and a half weeks, Garvin, because Garvin taped his fingers as well as throwing that overhead chop, and the tape on his fingers took the goddamn top layer of the epidermis off of Flair's chest to the point where he was putting antibiotic cream on his chest every night to prevent infection. Because he had, he was down to the raw meat in spots on his chest. There was no skin left. And he still didn't bleed like that. So the point is, I've seen people do what you're going for, boys. And that shit ain't it. So anyway, Jericho won again. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? And we don't have ratings for this fiasco because the next day was Thanksgiving and it's the holiday weekend and I don't think anybody's rushing, although they could probably, you could have probably got one guy that was off on Thanksgiving to just go around and do a head count personally on everybody that watched this program. Again, I watched this match with my brother. New Chris Jericho from years ago has not seen him on TV or anything since, and he thought the match was ridiculous. It looked like two guys standing there lightly hitting each other. When, like Garvin and Flair looked like there was some fire in it. This was there just, was. This was just let's stand here and do this over and over and over again. And it looked ridiculous. I know there are fans that love it because they'd love it if anyone did this. If anyone just stood there and chopped each other. But this was not good. Well, at least we got that all cleared up. So that was AEW for this last week. And oh boy, are you glad you're back now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we go to the main event of War Games and what set it up on Friday night, I know that there's all kinds of the... The Arcadian Vanguard Network goes on without all of us. I know there's all kinds of programs on this week, and as well, you've got some audio from a program in the archive you want to play us. That's right. Of course, get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcast or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. Of course, every day for free, 
The Wrestling News and your morning wrestling newscast. Go to thewrestlingnews.com or subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts to The Wrestling News for, again, free daily wrestling news, no clickbait, no paywall, just The Wrestling News. But Jim, this week when I talk about the 605 Super Podcast, the mothership! I don't know how I feel about doing it into a drum roll. That's kind of <laughs> weird. But uh, I want to talk about an episode in the archive because so many people, as I said at the top of the show, I can't ever thank everyone enough because it was so touching how many people have reached out and gotten in touch uh, about the passing of my father. And I want to play a clip from the 605 Super Podcast archives. This was the very first time he appeared twice, the first time my father ever appeared on the show. For everyone that's thought about him and thought about my family, you get to hear the real artifact right here. My father was not a wrestling fan at all. However, he drove me to wrestling shows. He took me to see wrestling. He supported what I liked. But I had him on the show because he had a tendency to, when flipping through the channel, seeing wrestling on and watching it long enough to hear something and then telling me what he thought he saw. And this included him discovering a tag team in the GWF on ESPN Classic called Sun and Fun, the Slipphouse Boys. There's no record, and we've all looked, for a team called Sun and Fun or the Slipphouse Boys. But here it is from the archives of the 605 Super Podcast, me and my father talking a little bit about wrestling and the Slipphouse Boys. I am happy to welcome to the Super Podcast someone who has been mentioned here on the air many times, a man who is responsible for the Slipphouse Boys, a man who I know very well, and that's my father. Pop, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. How's everything? I'm doing good. I'm happy to have you here on the air. So I guess before we say anything, I am a big wrestling fan. I've always been. You know that. But you're not. Is that correct? No. I, uh, I was a little kid. I used to watch Bobo Brazil, Argentina Apollo. Uh, Gordo Chihuahua, Who? Arnold Skoland, Gordo Chihuahua, a little Mexican guy. Is it, you know, I, okay, I thought you were making a up a belly. name. Okay. <laughs> no, Gordo Chihuahua. And it used to be on in the New York area. I, I seem to remember it was on late, but it was also on early Saturday mornings, I think, on Channel 9, WOR, or whatever it was called back then. So, but it was like uh, watching something from your high school lunchroom. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you know, when I got into wrestling, I remember you mentioning a lot of these names. You talked about Gorilla Monsoon and Killer Kowalski and Bruno. Right, Samarino. Gorilla, right. But right. you never liked it. In fact, it was the opposite. You always put it down. Why didn't you like professional wrestling? Because it was, it was no challenge. You knew who was going to win. You, uh, I mean, they, they're good athletes. I can't tell you they're not good athletes, but it was too phony. You know what I mean? It was just, it was, uh, it wasn't real. I mean, it wasn't real. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it was entertaining maybe to some people, but I was athletic and it just was, uh, like I said, you knew who was going to win. You knew this. The ref was like, had cerebral palsy. He couldn't do two <laughs> things at once. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> well, okay. I didn't know you were going to say that. But, you know, I know at times some of your friends watched wrestling or attended wrestling. I know when you went to school in Colorado, one of your best friends 
regularly watch the AWA. I know one of your friends in New York in the late 70s would go to Madison Square Garden to see Bob Backlund and Dusty Rhodes. Did any of your friends ever try to get you to watch wrestling or attend wrestling? Absolutely not. The only one who attended wrestling, I used to do business with somebody who had get got tickets all the time because they had some kind of, I can't remember the name, some kind of uh, action figure wrestlers. Uh, You're not talking about Cooperman, are you? Yes, yeah. Didn't he, didn't he have, have like action plaques have, or no, something? He, or? Well, he didn't have action figures, and that wasn't even who I was talking about. Cooperman had that company Star Trek where they took yeah, images Trek. of wrestlers or you know anything and they would kind of make it 3d they would take the actual body and separate it from the rest of the photography so that it popped out of the image no it was but it was a big seller i mean when i was a kid the announcer was i think vince mcmahon's father no he never announced Um, he didn't. So no. Who's the? I can't remember who the. It wasn't Claude Kirshner. So, <laughs> so uh, Ray Morgan. Ray Morgan would have been All the right. announcer. Glasses. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember. See, I remember. He looked like Bill Cullen or something. <laughs> I don't know if you know who Bill Cullen was. No, who's that? He used to do the, to do the prices right many years ago. Or... <laughs> well. Again, you never attended wrestling. You didn't watch wrestling, even at times when some of your friends. Well, did. I put it this way. If it was between that and Chatty Patty or somebody, I'd watch wrestling, you know. But, uh, you know, I was more into, like, Abbott and Costello show, The Three Stooges, and Superman. You know, was, uh... I understand. But when I became a big wrestling fan, you did take me to some wrestling events. Do you have any? Yes, mo- I did. Do you have any moments that stand out? Any wrestling events and wrestling yeah, that you saw? When I think Rowdy Piper had his pants pulled down when trying to climb out of the ring <laughs> at a steel cage. No, it was the other way around. Right. He pulled down the uh, pants was? of Ravishing. He Rick pulled down Rude. the pants, Ravishing Rick Rude. I remember Andre the Giant was gigantic, yeah. you know, and Hulk Hogan. I kick his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's my dad. That, that's certainly something I heard a lot throughout the years. Uh, so you never really got into it. What did you think when I became a big wrestling fan? At first, I thought, oh, he'll grow out of this. But uh, <laughs> yeah. he never grew out of it. And uh, you know what? Each his own. That's the way of life philosophy. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. What did you think in the 90s when I had a little bit of an enterprise going with tapes where I would dub no, tapes? Oh, it's good and- for you. You, you. you were into it and you enjoyed it. And it wasn't for me to say. I mean, you know, wasn't for me. I remember driving you to New Jersey. and uh, That's right. Cherry Hill, New Jersey, I think. Uh, yeah, that's before I had my license. You and, took me out there for uh, some. And we had some years. wrestlers stay at our house. That's and they right. were very nice guys. But, uh, you know, I don't know if they're all brain dead today or whatever, but I don't <laughs> well, know. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know that you have come up on this show several times because. I've mentioned to the listeners that I've spoken to you after, I don't know if you drank a bottle of wine or if you're just watching TV and don't want to change the channel, but you end up watching classic wrestling on ESPN Classic. Right. Some of that, um, I've watched some of that. I I even told you the name of the acts. I don't even remember, but it was a joke. I mean, really. Why was it a joke? You know what I mean? No, why? Tell me. It was a paycheck for these guys. I mean, some guy must have weighed 280 pounds and he was five foot four. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just those, uh, you know. Uh, but you watch and, uh, it, but you end up watching. I just watched it. Well, just to see what was going on. And it was, like I said, the, the key to the, all the matches were the, the referees. The referees were like, I guess they were told to look in the audience, or, you know, 
play with their zipper. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, <they> just, uh... <laughs> well, do any of these wrestlers that you've seen on these shows stand out, or do, does anything about these shows stand out? Well, since I live in Palm Beach County in Florida, there used to be a guy, Mr. Palm Beach. I forgot his name. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned with we actually... long, flowing hair and whatever. But uh, we did mention that on the air. Is... Yeah, but what his real name is, I couldn't tell you. you know. <laughs> the thing that made you famous on the show was when you said you saw it. This is what you told me. Tell me if I'm wrong. You told me right. that you saw a tag team named Sun and Fun, the Sliphouse Boys, correct? Right. I think so, yes. Now, I have gone back, and I know a lot of the listeners have gone back. There is no evidence whatsoever of a tag team called the Sliphouse Boys. No one knows what a Sliphouse even is let alone a team in wrestling named Sun and Fun. I could, I think they were from either Los Angeles or San Diego. That's what I seem to recall. They were from that area, Los Angeles or San Diego. But, uh, you know, it was fodder. But, you know, I'll tell you this, who was the toughest guy? Like you say, Andre the Giant or whatever. Will Chamberlain would have kicked his ass. <laughs> You see, this is what I grew up with. Any wrestler I like, my dad would name a real athlete or himself who would kick their ass. <laughs> well, Pop, let me ask you this. What is a slip yeah. house? I don't know. Not a whorehouse. So I don't really don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, that's the question. What, I don't would, it, what would a slip house I, be? I don't know, but I... Remember, I, I think I wrote it down and told you that at the time. And But the two wrestlers, I'm pretty sure, were from L.A. or San Diego. Okay. You know? we, we pretty much think we have figured out who it is you saw, which makes it even more interesting that the name you came up with was Sun and Fun, the Slipouse Boys. Right. Because there's no mention of them whatsoever. Now, the, the stuff you're watching is on ESPN Classic. That's Global Wrestling Federation from Dallas, Texas. Right. What do you think of right. that? What do you think of the look of it, the, the ambiance? What, what are your feelings about Global Wrestling Federation? It looks like a skanky gym. It looks like the boys' locker room and gym. You know what I mean? With, uh, <laughs> looks like looks like the, the audience is all from Florida. No, I'm just, <laughs> you know You're I living mean? in Florida. I, can... <laughs> I know. I don't know that. But, uh, and uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, you should get a match together, me against Donald Trump. Man, I don't yeah. <laughs> Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, I remember, you know, I became a big wrestling fan in 89. Of course, the cartoon show, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, was on, you know, beginning in, I think, maybe 1985. It was on for a few years. I had action figures, but I didn't actually watch wrestling. But during this period of time where I knew of wrestling, but I didn't watch it, you recorded WrestleMania three, which I ended up having on video when I became a fan, but you also used to record wrestling. If I'm, if I remember right for people in your office, like some of your employees would ask you to record it for them. Right. I don't remember. I do know. I watched pay-per-view boxing with them and I told them that to get one fight, one guy came over, got loaded. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, stop, him. stop, stop. I know the story. Yeah. You can't tell the story unless you say his name uh, or at least his nickname at work. I can't. I won't do it. Jerk Jerkules was his nickname. <laughs> so Jerkules came over the house. He lived. Where did he got, got drunk and then whatever fight. It was a big fight. No, I think no. it was stop, Hagler stop. or Hearns. No, yeah. no, no, no. It was Tyson no? Spinks. 
It was? Which ended in whatever, 44 seconds. Yes, it was. Right. And I told him the wrong guy won, I think. (laughs) And he told everyone what a fight, you know, Spinks killed him or whatever. uh... (laughs) Well. Hello, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. No one's, none of them are listening. Don't, you don't have to worry about offending anyone in that world who's listening. You already threatened to kick the ass of uh, Hulk Hogan. So I think. uh... Well, he lives on the other side of the state from here. Yeah, and I could talk like my hair's as long as his. You know, is that how you think? You know, and he's, I'm, I think I'm I'm older than him too. So, give me your impression of a wrestler interview from someone who isn't a wrestling fan. What do you mean an impression? Like, how do you think they sound? Like they uh, just came off the boat. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, Pop, here's where uh, I want to ask you something. So, so many of the listeners have been entertained by these stories about you watching classic wrestling and then interpreting not just what you see, but also the names of the wrestlers. Right. I would like to create a new segment on the show, somewhat semi-regular, where I send you a DVD of classic wrestling, something before... Well, you know, if I had a machine, I got all your tapes in my garage. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> All those wrestling tapes you used to have? But you don't have a VCR. Somewhere in my garage. Well, you don't have all of them. Uh, you have a lot of the ones no. I didn't take with yes. me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. but you have a DVD player, correct? Yes. So I could send you a DVD. I have Blu-ray, DVD. Well, I'll send you something of classic wrestling. Would you review it for the program? Yeah, why not? But you can't take notes. That's the only catch. You have to no, go okay. based no, on no, what you fine. remember. I'll watch it and get gas. So that's all. <laughs> what? Why would you? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> so there we go. You are committing to being willing, being able to do this segment where we're going to send you some classic wrestling. We'll get some suggestions from the listeners and you will come on the program and say what it is you saw, whether you liked it, whether you didn't and whatever other comments you have about it. All right. Say hello. I'll say hello to everyone. Hello. Goodbye. And that's it. That's what it is. Well, there it is, a clip from the 605 Super Podcast archives, my father and myself on the show. You could hear more of the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or find it wherever you find your favorite podcast, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. And once again, thank you to everyone who's reached out. I really do appreciate it. How old were you the first time you came to a Smoky Mountain Fan Week? 14. How did you present that to your to your dad? To like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to East Tennessee for a week and hang out by myself with a bunch of other wrestling fans going to wrestling shows every night. Well, I had already gone to summer camp for several years. Oh, summer camp is just exactly like Smoky Mountain Fan Week. No, I mean there's more mature people <laughs> usually at summer camp. No, but exactly. I aged out of summer camp and I needed something to do with my summer when I was 14. And I was a big wrestling fan, and I was getting the tapes, and I was getting the sheets, and I knew what was going on, and I was a big Jim Cornette fan, and a big fan of other people in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and I convinced them to let me go down. They knew I was responsible. I could handle myself if I had to, even though I was a little kid. Uh, I was pretty street smart, and everything worked out accordingly.
And and the the accommodations were wonderful over at the West Town Inn. The West Town Inn the first year. The second year we had, I think, a Holiday Inn over by uh, the Denny's in Knoxville. And I only hit one fan. So there you go. And it was just the once. It was just the once. And he deserved yeah. it. He egged me on. He did. And, and he got it. He certainly got egged. Well, anyway, speaking of eggs, let's talk about, and on your program this week, we're going to go over more of Survivor Series, but there were... The main event, the war games, and I was interested in this because basically of the Sami Zayn involvement in the bloodline, and now they're throwing in the the Kevin Owens, you know, friendship with Sami from way back that everybody knows is true, and they've talked about it. You know, it's not just something they pulled out of their ass three weeks ago. They've been talking about it on and off for the t- entire time those guys have been around, and now... Owens is on the other side of Sammy and he's trying to prove himself to the bloodline, blah, blah, blah. So this is interesting. So SmackDown, and by the way, if you want to talk about a boring television program, just read what they presented on SmackDown the night before the Survivor Series and tell me that they hadn't just said, fuck it. We don't care anymore. Nobody buys the pay-per-views. They're going to watch it on the cock. But anyway, the, the... the only thing that after I read the recap that I wanted to see was the interview between Sammy and Kevin Owens. And they did the backstage deal where Sammy's just got there and Owens comes up to him and says, Hey, what's going to happen to you, Sammy, when you say the wrong thing to one of these guys? You know, I've helped you a million times out in the past when you've pissed somebody off. And what's going to happen when you do that to them, you need to be proactive. You need to turn on them before they turn on you. But, and it's actually, I guess it was a little hokey, but it works because again, at least Owens and Zane can talk and they, they seem more natural with this rather than the scripted stentorian delivery of the wannabe actors they got in the business these days. But there's Jey Uso behind the door listening to the interaction between Owens and Zane. And so finally, Kevin says that, and he leaves, and then Jay comes out the door right as Sammy's going to come in. Hey, where you been? You talked to anybody since you've been here? No, no. And Jay knew he was lying. So they planted that seed. And then, of course, the main event on SmackDown was a War Games advantage match. They don't do a coin flip anymore. It was Drew and Sheamus with Butch and Ridge and Owens against the Usos with Solo and Sammy, just no Roman. In a, in a tag match, and the winners would get the advantage in the War Games. And, of course, it was typical WWE. They have 10 minutes of entrances. They go less than two minutes in match, and they go to the break. And they came back for five minutes or so, and went to another break, and football had delayed the show about five or ten minutes, so I missed the finish, but the baby faces won. So for the first time, I I say baby faces, I mean the Drew and Sheamus and their group, because you can't tell otherwise, because the people are cheering the heels more than the baby faces. But so for the first time, I guess, ever in history, the baby face team had the advantage going into war games. And that was SmackDown. I will throw that over my shoulder right now. Go ahead. Let me stop you there and let's talk about that. What about the philosophy behind the babyface team having the advantage in war games? 
Well, it was certainly tough to pull off in this one, but uh, uh, let's talk about it then. Because traditionally, the baby faces would be at the disadvantage numerically throughout the match. One guy from each team starts, but then the winner of the coin flip or the advantage match or whatever, the next guy to get in the ring is one from the the heel team. And then it's two on one, and then a baby face comes in two on two, but through the whole deal, until everybody gets in, traditionally the baby faces have been down a man because that made it easier because the whole formula until you got everybody in the ring was you put the best two workers in and they do five minutes of spots and then a heel comes in and it's two on one and they start getting fucking heat or juice or whatever on the baby face. And then every time successively that a baby face gets in the ring, the heels feed him for a big comeback. And that settles down right about the end of the two minutes where another heel comes in and gets the advantage and they take over on a baby face. And that's traditionally the way it happens. Because elsewise, you would have a situation where there were all kinds of, there were heels getting outnumbered and beaten up by the baby faces, and they were also, the numbers were against them, and it puts them in a sympathetic light. Of course, they didn't have to worry about a lot of this here because they are doing the same goddamn thing in the war games that they do in all these tag team matches. When somebody's spot is over with, they'll just roll onto the apron and sell for minutes at a time in plain sight, immobile, doing nothing but sitting there watching what's going on until their cue. And we talked about this last week. I've talked about it several times. Last week, I think, was Solomon. He was there in... Connecticut at that dynamite, and you actually, the people in the arena normally, you can't see it on television, but the people in the arena are looking at these people just rolling out of the ring and taking a break and laying there on the floor, leaning over, waiting for their next cue. And I mean, that's that would have got people fired in the day to be that phony and that lazy. But now they're doing it in the war games where they can't even roll out of the ring and you can't not see them. But they're still doing it. So again, it, the war games is not the same war games as it used to be. The war games was brilliant because of the time and the context. You had four top heels that were in the same group, a long, well-established group usually holding the world champion and the U.S. champion and maybe the tag team champions and their manager. And then you had a group of baby faces that were all aligned together, whether it be Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff and the Road Warriors and Barry Windham or whichever of the Dusty's babyface guys that fit together and everybody knew they were friends and everybody in the match was a legitimate main event guy, the most over guys on the roster. And then you put them with a, a personal issue where they've all hated each other and they've injured each other and they've attacked each other and they've done horrible things to each other. 
And then you finally say, fuck it, one side's got to win, one side's got to lose, we're going to put them in this double cage with a roof, lock them in, and goddamn whoever is the last surviving team wins this thing. And and then you had the blood and the violence and the, the palpable hatred that fans could feel that the, the, the guys were showing each other. And remember the 80s War Games matches. The people were jumping up and down, cheering and yelling and screaming from one end to the other. And the, the action didn't slow down because since you're in the cage, there's no place to go away. So every once in a while, somebody would get run into the cage head first and be knocked goofy and lay in the corner for a little while. But it was hard to get the baby faces to sell that much because they didn't want to look weak. And the heels all had to be up most of the time to to either feed the baby faces or to keep the baby faces from taking back over. It, it wasn't all constant action, but everybody was constantly involved. And again, the 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 way the fans the fans jumping up and down and screaming and yelling and you can see the hawk doing his ah and the road warriors that. And this was like, okay, we have a group that's over the bloodline headed by the biggest, well, one of the two biggest stars we've got in the company now. Is Roman any more uh, full-time than Brock is these days? Their group fits. So let's put together another group consisting of a couple of top guys that have been up and down on the card, Sheamus and Drew McIntyre, and then let's put in Sheamus's two little fucking cohorts, and one named Butch. And was this 10 individual top main event stars? Did this match indicate that this was going to be the culmination of a years-long cutthroat rivalry? Is it necessary to lock all of them up? And then it didn't work. So it that's the reason why I watched this match without watching the women's war games first. Because why do you want to watch the war games when you've already watched the war games? And if you watch war games with women, with girl wrestlers fighting in a cage with weapons... Not only does it make the whole thing look phony as a football bat, but also then... I've just seen a War Games. What do I want to watch the one with all the main event talent in it for? Oh, I forgot. Because it's only half main event talent. So, (sighs) Butch is a fine worker. But the name and the presentation and the appearance, ridiculous. Ridge Holland is greener than a pepper tree, and if he couldn't throw a forearm, I don't know what else he did in this match. This was a 45-minute backdrop for Sami Zayn and Jey Uso to have issues and further that story. The heel team, the bloodline was more popular. Sami especially gets big cheers, but Roman, they chant for Roman. So the heels are more popular than the baby faces. As I mentioned, half the guys are just kind of in there. They're not really legitimate main event talent. This long-running rivalry came up about six weeks ago. (laughs) And 
And then at at one point, at several points, <clears throat> when like when Drew McIntyre got in, all of his other teammates were down. So Drew goes face to face with Sammy and Jay and kicks both their asses, while Drew's teammates just lay there and sell and watch him. But as soon as he gets in trouble, they jump in and save him. And then they actually took bumps and rolled and went back to the same place they were before after they saved him and stood there and sold and sat there, laid there and sold and watched again. And then finally, as Jimmy Uso comes in, he's like the fifth one or whatever. He pulls three tables underneath, out from underneath the ring and throws them all in a cage. And all the baby faces were laying there while they were watching the heels bring in and set up all the furniture. Just laying there, watching. And then Sammy and Jay argue, yes, I know it's the story, but the heels were still in control of the babyface team. The babyfaces gave them all the time in the world to bring all that fucking furniture in the ring, and then they were still fighting them like it was even. Because it, it was even. And then here comes Kevin Owens in and he throws three chairs in the ring and he makes a comeback with the chairs. And did you notice, Brian, by that point, the fans were just sitting there. They're not standing up. Imagine the war games in the Omni in 1987 when Nikita Koloff came in and started clotheslining everybody out of their boots. Was there one person in the Omni sitting down? And then after the... Owens did the swanton off the top. They gave him a polite round of applause like it was a tennis game. And then Owens put Jimmy through a table. They're going to do table spots later on, but they just had, they did a table spot right there. It just put him through the table. And then they did a lot of kicking in the corners. Solo comes in, the big street fighter. And he comes down with a mean face and he gets in the ring and he's not even going to pick up a piece of furniture because he's a badass. Did you see what happened? Here comes Solo, the street fighting Samoan. Not only did nobody feed him, nobody even paid a goddamn lick of attention to him getting coming down or getting in the ring. He had to go over to the other ring and turn people around and start hitting them. And then they more of the, the shit they do where everybody lays there and sells for minutes, but you can still see them. I liked it a lot better when the wrestlers were around the ring yelling and, you know, moving the cage and, and just getting involved yes. as opposed to being caged up in the back of the building. Yeah, they're they're in a cage in the back so that they can't get out of that cage and get in the real cage. But at the same time, on the way down to the ring, they can stop to pull in furniture and appliances. And again, like you said, in the old war games, all the guys were waiting at the door, anxious, chomping at the bit to get in, screaming for their compadres. Anywho, so finally, and they did feed Seamus, by the way, so apparently he said something, or they set that up because they fed Seamus when he came in. But finally, Roman, the last heel comes in and gets the biggest pop. Imagine situations being reversed and Ric Flair came, Dusty Rhodes came in first and then Ric Flair and Rick got more cheers than Dusty. So he walks down slowly because he's a badass and he picks his team up and they line up in ring two and the 
other team lines up in ring one and they have a big 10 way. And then Roman levels everybody with his big Superman punches. And then they finally got the people with the big five-way forearm to the chest spot, the 10 beats of the Bowery, where, and I mean, this was, it couldn't have been, it's good, but it couldn't have been more fucking choreographed. But the people liked that. And right then I wrote, can we get to the finish? But apparently not. They got more story to tell. Butch Ducks and Jay Super kicks Sammy. And the fans chant asshole at the heel that fucks up and kicks the other heel. And then Roman Reigns speared Ridge Holland through a table in the corner and solo rock-bottomed Drew McIntyre through another one moments later. Why more than one table? It only breaks the same way. It just it means if if you're the third guy going through a table, you're just a fucking idiot. Because they've just seen it twice, and you're the one taking the risk. And then. Reigns and Owens did a big one-on-one while all eight other guys just rolled over and laid there and took a nap. And then, as Owens finally hit a couple moves and then a stunner and actually covered Roman and it looked like that might be it, one, two, Zayn comes alive and grabs the referee's arm, stops the count. And, of course, that gets over with Roman, I'm sure, but Owens and Zayn stare at each other and the fans start chanting Sammy Uso. <laughs> They're chanting for the fucking heel again. And so Sammy hits Owens in the balls, but is then conflicted. And meanwhile, everybody else in the war games is still laying out so that this dramatic play going on in the middle of the ring can be completed. And then Zane hits a big, the big kick on Owens and then gives him to Jay. And Jay does the splash off the top, one, two, three. Well, it wasn't your father's war games. It was 45 minutes. They could have done the action part in about 25. Um, the story takes precedence over the match and everything else, as usual in this company. And they managed to make the war games look fake by just everybody doing the same shit they do in the regular matches, laying around, waiting for their fucking cue. Your thoughts? You know, I really didn't care about the matchup until the end, just because it's the Brawling Brutes and Drew McIntyre, who, like you said, until recently have had nothing to do with the bloodline. All of a sudden, they're in a War Games match. The Owens stuff with Zayn, and then the reaction, the hug at the end, you didn't mention after the match, Jey Uso hugs Sami Zayn. Oh, I forgot. Yes, yes, they did hug. That's the most intriguing stuff, and that's the stuff that got a reaction from the fans with Sami Zayn's involvement at the end. I agree with what you said a few weeks ago. He may be my favorite guy in WWE, because everything he does, he's totally into. It's amazing to think we're going to get another round of Zayn and Owens, but it looks like we're going to do that. Well, they, they will go to their graves wanting to wrestle each other again. Will there be a... El Hijo del Generico at some point. That's the question. Um, Probably only if there's a El Hijo del Steen. I like the ending and I like the storytelling in that. But you could almost forget that anyone else was there or that it was a War Games match. It was all just about that moment at the end with Zayn officially turning on Owens and then being embraced by the bloodline. I like that. I thought that was well done and that was cool. But the, yeah. the entire match, I didn't give a shit about it. I actually like the women's War Game match better. Oh, Jesus. 
Well, all right, don't spoil anything, but tell me, did they refrain from bringing in tables and chairs and lions and tigers and bears, oh my? No. They since, had the, since they did it in the last one? They had to lay the groundwork for the rest of the night. They oh, geez. All indeed right. had it in there. Well. This is spot. Now, another one I want you to watch when Bianca Belair goes down and either sells her leg or really thought she hurt her leg. And all of a sudden, the camera, for the first time all night, doesn't switch. It's just on the other ring and things happening. I want to know what you think of that, too. Oh, boy. Now you're giving me fucking homework. Ten girls in a cage for better than a half an hour using furniture. And Teddy Hart's just, not involved. It sounds great. I just can't wait. All right. We, we've worked you out enough for your first time back. We got to bring you into this slowly, Brian. But thank you for joining me here today. And thank all of you guys for joining us here today. And we will sign off until sometime later on this week. Schedule to be determined when we will be back with the drive through which is Brian's program, and plenty of feedback and questions and comments from the Cult of Cornet members out there. Correct? I believe so. Correct. Well, in that case, my work is done here. Brian, thank you so much. Thank all of the minions of the Arcadian Vanguard. Solomon Grundy, we love you for last week, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you, Brian Solomon. I agree. Brian Solomon, too, as well as Solomon Grundy. And otherwise, we're done. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Go on.
wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Spock the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. Hero. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero. The young bucks could shoot on bus Sawyer. Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer. Don't come in, Mom. Don't come in. Are you touching yourself again? No. Nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elser says I'm in the key demo I am 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single male, I'm in the key demo oh, Elser says I'm in the key demo